are and welcome back to the Horror Cult Films Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, David Smith. You join me on a dark and stormy night here in Horror Cult Films Towers. A storm is brewing, the waves are roaring and the winds are howling. Listen carefully and you may hear the calls of gulls outside, but I won't kill them, that's bad luck. After all, they are the souls of dead sailors. Luckily, I have someone here to save my sanity or to push me over the edge. My special guest, Gaines Murdoch. Dr. Gaines Murdoch, I should say, a close friend of mine and a historian who's making his podcast debut. Say hi, Gaines. Uh, Hello, David. Hello, all. And what a show to do this on. In the last few years, we've seen a number of new names in the horror. Ari Aster, Jennifer Kent and Jordan Peele all have made two films. For maybe the most exciting of them all is Robert Eggers, a production designer turned writer-director. Tonight, we're going to be talking about his debut and its sophomore efforts, The Witch and The Lighthouse, a pair of period horrors that take our genre to new places. But before that, let's talk about what else we've been seeing lately. Gaines! And by the way, for the Americans listening, that is a first name over here. Let's begin with you. What have you been watching lately? It is a it's more normally a second name apart from myself the only gains i'm aware of is my grandfather so it's not it's a it's unusual over here as well in fairness <laughs> it's a verb <laughs> that's a good thing <laughs> it's also yeah it's also a verb i, I mean i suppose um, smith is a verb too right yes yes um as well as uh not a proper noun um yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so what have I been watching recently? Apropos of uh, what we're going to be talking about this evening, I recently finished watching a really good historical horror series called The Terror, which is about um, John Franklin's ill-fated voyage in the 1840s to try and find the Northwest Passage. And spoiler alert, it does not go well. And um, it, it's, it's a really, really interesting historical horror, very immersive in the same way that uh, the films we'll be talking about this evening were. Although I will say that the supernatural element of it was not quite my cup of tea, but it's still well worth a watch. For those of you in the UK, it's, it's still on BBC iPlayer. And as much as I've been trying to avoid engaging with the Uh, you know, fairly uh, extensive news coverage of uh, the recent death of a certain member of the royal family. I also, partly as a result of that, perhaps re-watched the first series of The Crown on on Netflix. (laughs) But uh, what about yourself, David? What have you been watching? Well, firstly, I just wanted to ask a wee question about the uh, terror. See, I've read the book of the terror. I've not watched a TV show, read the book, and thoroughly enjoyed it. I would agree with you, by the way, that the Supernatural elements, the longer the book goes on, the less interested I was with it. However, mm-hmm. this was a, is a... It's an A&D production, is that right? Or is it Sky Atlantic who, who do it? Oh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, the reason I ask is I, I assume this has got a very cinematic look about it, right? Oh, certainly. Yeah, it, it really, really does. You know, both the, the sections of the series which are on the ships... Uh, Erebus and, and Terror, uh, but also those that end up on the ice itself. Um, fantastic cast as well, I will say. You know, there's there's a few really good names in there. Jared Harris, uh, for instance, uh, Kieran Hines, but also a couple of guys who I hadn't, I hadn't seen before in, the, in any series or films who were, who were excellent as well. So there's a lot to commend it as, as, as well. And to stick with one of the themes for tonight... Obviously, this is based loosely around a real expedition. Mm -hmm. Now, with the book, 
and this is a fucking big book, by the way. This is a this is one of those eight hundred pages. Dan Simmons goes into meticulous detail about some of the prior kind of uh, expeditions that him and the crew had been on. And mm-hmm. what I'm wondering about is with the show, up until the supernatural element becomes more overpowering as it goes on. Would you say it functions much as a historic drama on its own term? To a fair extent, the most engaging part of it that I found was the relation between the men on board the ship and the conflicts that they had as to what the voyage was going to was going to be about, and then the well, without giving too much detail away, you know, the mutiny that sort of breaks out further into the series. So I think that that does come across rather rather well. The, the tricky bit I found was we do know how a lot of these men died. I mean, we, we have found their, their bones literally in the Arctic. So adding this supernatural element of getting killed by this this, this great beast, um, mm-hmm. essentially, the, the, the tomb back, I think they referred to it as the Inuit people anyway within the within the story. I could actually see what they were trying to do with that as, as, as kind of a metaphor for going into environments that you should be going into and, and, and perhaps that side of things. But it dampened down, in my view, what were some of the best bits of that show. I think that it was terrifying enough on its own without actually the supernatural, in my view. There's a second season, I believe, that's available as well. Not about the same subjects, though. So I think this is actually based around uh, an internment camp, I think, in the the west coast of the United States during World War II, um, with uh, Japanese-Americans being held there. And I think there's, there's again, a kind of uh, mythological element to it. Cool. Uh, So lately, I was watching Antebellum, which is currently on Now TV and Sky Movies, it's an uh, American horror film all about the legacy of slavery. Now, mm-hmm. the problem with this film, and it got really bad reviews, it's maybe not as bad as some of the reviews suggest, it just feels horribly exploitative at points. And a large part of this is the social commentary is really, really shallow. If you saw the trailer, you know there's two periods that run through it. I was expecting a very nice time travel film. It doesn't really go that direction. It goes in a very different one and borrows very heavily from another movie, a very successful movie, and you're probably all thinking the name of it just from the way I've summarised the premise. That was not so good. In fact, I've seen a whole bunch of stuff that's not very good. I watched the two sequels to Urban Legend. Urban Legend 2 It's decent enough, but something it really fails to do is nail any form of group dynamic. You have a bunch of people who barely meet or interact, and you've got a killer just offing them. A couple of podcasts ago, Ross said the ending was really, really obvious. I personally did not guess who'd done it. There was a particular person who just seemed so obviously the killer that I was latching onto them, and it turned out I was wrong, alas. And then, finally, Urban Legend 3. Now, Urban Legend 3 makes Urban Legend 2 look like Urban Legend 1. This was terrible. It's a supernatural urban legend film where they're using the myth of Bloody Mary. Now, Bloody Mary is my favourite urban legend, so this film should have had an easy job to do. It's, got, it's like Slenderman. It's got really rich source material, and yet we get this really inept supernatural revenge plot. Gaines, when you were growing up, did you guys all play Bloody Mary in front of mirrors at midnight? Not really, no. I remember 
kind of hearing about it mostly from like American horror sorts of film, we had the kind of more local stuff about, you know, ooh, this uh, this old castle, this old tower is haunted or uh, around the corner from where I, 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 I grew up. There was a neighbor that uh, claimed to have attacked people on the beach with an axe. That you know, sounds brutal. Well, yes. And, um, and he, actually had, he actually had done this, right? Like this isn't like that's just a sick story rather than an urban legend. I think it's one of these things that got exaggerated over time. You know, it's a funny thing. Uh, we, I, I, we we tend to have in, in, in Scotland this kind of, we have some kind of urban urban legends, you know, we had the the Gorbals vampire, but this was this is quite a way back. But we we tend to more have, at least from my angle, from my experience, like the, the more sort of historical horror sort of tropes, you know, ghosts and and, and things of that nature. We also had the uh, big grey man of Ben McDewey, um, mm-hmm. not not local to Edinburgh. At the same nope. time, that was one of our ones. You know, we've obviously got in Edinburgh, we have our stories about Burke and Hare and stuff like that, which, whilst they were real people, at the same time, there's, yeah. I assume, great exaggerations that go into this. I was uh, probably around about 20 and genuinely gutted to learn that Greyfriars Bobby was not real. But <laughs> if anyone, by the way, particularly anyone listening in the States, has no idea what I'm talking about with Greyfriars Bobby, have a wee Google and be prepared for a sad tale. Or watch a Futurama episode, Jurassic Bark, which is basically about the same thing. Or even the Odyssey. You know, I think the only creature that recognises uh, Odysseus when he when he comes back to Ithaca is his ancient hound who's been waiting for him for 20 years. Or Akita, I think the dog's name is, in, in, in Tokyo that used to meet his master at the train station uh, every day after he came, came back from work. Uh, even... And, and even did so after the master died. So it's a very common trope that, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, loyal dogs and even loyal after the end, if you like. It's more than possible that it was based on a real dog that did that. I think what sort of built the Grey Fars Bobby thing, not, not to go on too much of a tangent, because we've got two really, really good films to get into this evening, but it was an American uh, lady called Eleanor Atkinson who heard the story. It was meant to have been Scottish immigrants to Chicago, in the late 19th century and uh, you know, early 20th century sat down and wrote a book, Greyfriars Bobby, and it became massively successful. Uh, films were even made about this this dog specifically with um, some very dodgy Scottish accent, <laughs> more than a lot of Hollywood films that, that have uh, Scots in them, or Scottish characters in them at least. One other thing we've been watching is we have been watching the Mission Impossible films, the first four of them. I tell you what... I personally love all of them, including the slightly stupid second one. However, one real problem with this movie is the involvement of Tom Cruise. I don't just mean because Tom Cruise comes across as quite unhinged in real life, allegedly. What I mean is because he's got a lot of input into the characterization of the movies and what's going to happen in the stories... Ethan Hunt is the ultimate Mary Sue character. There is nothing, no situation you can put him in where he is against the odds. You know, this guy can go, you know, if the plot demands it, I can suspend myself just on my core muscles. You know, I can boot a gun up into the air, spin round and shoot it <laughs> if I choose to. You know, I can uh, can ride a motorcycle. I can speak any language the plot requires. I can do shit on computers that even my tech guy can't do without breaking a sweat. 
People could argue, hey, isn't James Bond kind of the same? You know, James Bond will wax lyrical about Fabergé eggs and stuff like this when the plot demands it. But I also would suggest if you put James Bond in a situation where he has to do something like, I don't know, jet skiing, he wouldn't look cool in that situation. Because they have the stupidly good-looking Tom Cruise, I say that still whilst he's presumably in his 50s at this point, and looks far better shape than I do. Thankfully, this is just a, an audio medium here. Point being that Tom Cruise never feels like he's in any danger. Other than that, they're very, very good fun films. You know, by the time yeah. a guy can run down the side of a world's tallest building, you're not going to be shitting it when he goes into a room where characters have guns. Now, enough on that. Let's go to the news. <laughs> Gainsey, I've picked out two particular stories. First one, did you know that Dexter is coming back for season nine? I'd, I'd heard. Have you seen the new teaser trailer that just dropped today? No, I, 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 I haven't seen it. Allow me to uh, paint a picture. Imagine Dexter in a cabin looking out at a snowy landscape. You hear that Nina Simone song, you know, I'm a soul whose intentions are good. He's like, that's ah, just uncanny. Uncanny. <laughs> like she's back. <laughs> he uh, looks into the camera, raises his eyebrows if you say, yeah, I'm back. And he is. It's, it's going to be a 10 parter. And apparently it will not be a soft reboot. Everything that's happened is canon up until this point. What happened? I would say. It's quite a mixed show, really. You had four relatively good seasons. A fifth, which was... Eh, and then a whole bunch of shite afterwards. <laughs> like, were, you, were you big on Dexter? I was for a time hardly unique in the sense that I... You know, I, I thought it was a decent enough show for a while. And, and it actually did, you know, hit, hit high point. Uh, I think it was the, the fourth season with... Um, with Trinity, uh, played played by uh, John Lithgow, and oh, he was fucking brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and I think that was actually one of the, the things about Dexter was that they, they would usually bring in, uh, you know, a character like like Trinity with with a prominent guest star as well throughout that 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 series, one particular series, and how good that guest star was sometimes I think raised the uh, the, the quality of, of the show overall or didn't depending on who it was but yeah i thought that was the high water mark and later series for me and i because i did end up watching it all eventually it just weren't as good and i thought the the hmm, the kind of semi-incestuous um uh, point of it uh, for varen didn't quite work for me the weird thing about the incestuous angle she didn't really commit to it she's like i love dexter a few episodes later when she's well once she learns some things, trying to keep the slightly ambiguous, she's like, yeah, I'm over that crush, lol. Like, you know, <laughs> this is someone fancies a pop star or something. You're like, no, no, this is a very different thing. Um, yeah. The, Combined with, weirdly, them being in a relationship as well, I think, for, for during some of that time. Yeah, that's, that's right. They absolutely were dating. Uh, season eight was, I don't think it was the ending the show deserved. I mean, even with some of the problematic elements with season seven, it still felt like it had a momentum that just seemed to get curbed where you had this really low stakes final season. He's just swanning around with nobody suspecting him. And then obviously the infamous finale, which we're 
not going to go into, but the teaser trailer does allude to it a little bit. Something that amused me about it was the uh, dad, Harry. Harry was one of the worst on-screen fathers before (laughs) The Witch, where, you know, with Harry, you have this situation of, oh, I think my son's a killer. I know, I'm going to give him a code so he kills the right people. (laughs) And it was consistent with the show's ethos of gradually turning into pro-death penalty propaganda as it went on. You know, Dexter's motive change in my kill because I like killing to some people don't deserve jail. And it made for quite an uncomfortable viewing experience at points. So yeah, no, I, I can't say I'm all that excited to be honest it doesn't sound like you are either to be honest <laughs> I mean I will, I will still watch it when it comes out and then I'll, I'm gonna fucking moan about it when I do watch it as well and the other bit of news coming up is there's also a TV series of Let the Right One In that has now got itself a confirmed showrunner and director so the showrunner is going to be Andrew Heindraker, who is most famous for Penny Dreadful, and also uh, Seth Mann, who directs Homeland, is going to be the director on this one. Personally, as someone who's read the book and seen both versions of the film, and also seen the play, I actually am quite excited about this. I think if Let It Write One In, neither film has really done the source material uh, justice as a horror production. I say that as someone who loves the movie of Let It Write One In. It had to cut things, and it cut a couple of really good subplots out. So I'm curious to see if they bring that back. When you say the movie, did, do you mean the original Swedish uh, film? Or, oh, yes, or yes. The, both, uh, both of them did this. Uh, both of them uh, chopped the same plot. It's why, yeah... So I remember when the second, the American one was coming out, seeing the director going, oh, well, this is actually an adaptation of the same book. You know, we're not doing a remake. You go, it's funny that you chopped the same subplot out for your adaptation. You know, one would almost think you just remade the, uh, remade the Swedish one, which had a lot of the same dialogue as the book. So, you know, sort of American film, right? I haven't um, read the book originally. So, I mean, I have heard that there's definitely darker elements within that and especially with with the relationship between the child stroke vampire and uh, her minder or or how would you mm. phrase that relationship as, as well and but i've I, i've yet to yet to read it there's also a semi-sequel short story that was published which says what happens next something that i hope they add to the ending is a nice little coda So, folks, that is the news. Now, we are going to go off to the wilderness. We are going to be discussing The Witch. Black Philip Safe, you are wicked. Just here to speak to thee. We are back for The Witch. You know, the first time I watched this, I was at a premiere with Sony Pictures. And when you would go into these sorts of screenings, it's usually a few weeks, maybe sometimes a month before the actual movie comes out. So when I saw that, I had absolutely no idea 
that it would be as big as it was. You know, some movies you come out and you go, oh, that's going to be huge. You now watch the Babadooka come out saying, that's going to be massive. I come out of the witch and I think, that was amazing. But I had no idea it was going to be, like, I could have seen it as a classic. I had no idea it was going to be something that, something that people flocked to the cinema to watch. Didn't seem like an obvious hit. Gaines, when did you first saw when you first saw The Witch? What were your thoughts about it? I went to see it after the hype had begun to to build because it had quite a, as I recall, quite a, a truncated you know time at the cinema. It was in and around for quite a while, and I remember hearing about it, and I think also hearing about it from yourself as to how good a, a film it it was, and you know reading various reviews and. I didn't manage to see it for a while. I think it came out over the summer of uh, 2016, I suppose it would have been. And, you know, at that point, I was I was very busy and, and, and my job was, is, uh, given global events, mostly mostly tour guiding in Edinburgh. And uh, so our summertime was our very busy point. So I avoided seeing it for a while just because I didn't want to be in town for, you know, up until the end of the evening always. So... But I made a point of of seeing it in the very one of the very last showings in Edinburgh. Just went on my own at a ridiculously late time. It was about ten o'clock at night or something, uh, midweek. And uh, yeah, um, going in and and just amazing. If you were going to design a horror film for for my particular kind of tastes or sensibilities, you know, <laughs> you, you could do a lot worse than. The Witch, great as a horror, not just the usual things you require, the, the, the chills and uh, getting gripped by the story, but but also um, just how damn immersive it was. The obvious amount of research and and, and preparation that went in for it, just uh, I was so impressed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, with Eggers as a form production designer, I assume that this will have come into it when he's creating these really wonderful sets that we see. Mm-hmm. Also, the script was supposedly based on old diaries and uh, like court entries and stuff like that. Right? Yes, uh, they made the point at the very end of of the film. It's, it's coming from inspired by folk tales, fairy tales, and written accounts of historical witchcraft, journals, diaries, and court records. And then much of the dialogue was taken directly uh, from sources. And you can tell... Uh, apparently, in his in his research process, um, he he just found he just purposely look, went looking for chunks of dialogue and then put them into different categories. So, for instance, <laughs> things you'd say about farming, if you come across a quote from that in one of the sources, note it down, put it in that category. Things you'd say to your children, and things you'd say if you were possessed, oh. uh, which came into <laughs> the film, uh, yeah, as well. Because the old court the old court records, they don't fuck around with this, right? Because you got mm. like. Old court records that, that that mention, oh yeah, this woman then turned into turned into like a bird and flew out the window and stuff. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. That's bollocks. But at the same time, presumably other people would have had to like witness this. It'd be collective hysteria for sure. And and I think that you know one thing that you, you know Eggers, I think was was always trying to emphasize with this film was hammering it home to people that you know people back then in the, in the 17th century the majority of people genuinely believed in, in witches and so on to um, to one degree or another. I mean, I think there's sometimes a, a bit of a misconception that, you know, a uh, modern uh, conception that we have that um, people were just kind of very cynical about this and were, you know, just using it to exploit things. I'm sure there were people 
as part of all this who were that quite fancied old Widow McCleary's land and so wanted her to kind of get knocked off the way out the way. But uh, you know, you have to bear in mind how sincere people were about this to, for, for so long. I mean, even the king in, in Scotland and England, Ireland from 1603 onwards, uh, James, James VI and I uh, wrote a book about witchcraft, uh, Demonology. Yeah, because um, I think what, what I guess the appeal of witches would be here is you're able to use something relatively simple to explain yeah. something very complex. You know, you'd say things like, all right, well, why aren't we getting our crops growing or whatever? Witches did it. And through using the, uh, you know, for the people in a position of authority blaming the witch, then you can see how these social norms catch on because you're looking at a very tiered society where, you know, it's people seem to see it functioning as some sort of meritocracy, you work off the basis of, all right, well, I'm going to trust the people above me here. You know, I'm going to trust the people who, who run this place, who know what's going on. And so when you've got the court record saying, oh yeah, it turned into a bird when fucked off out of a window, then you can see how these sorts of stories would spread, particularly among people that wouldn't necessarily be as educated, who just want a good explanation why things like crops can't grow, why they can't feed people. Yes, or, you know, from a more kind of religious standpoint, you know, where where sin comes from and how how it spreads, wickedness and all the rest of it. And as I said, you know, I I don't think it's it's like a deliberate thing here in this regard. But, you know, uh, and, and, uh, you know, a proportion of of people accused of witchcraft were were men, um, you know, 20, perhaps 25 percent were um, revealing, obviously, a uh, great anxiety with within a society about about women uh, mm. at the same time. Yeah, because in this case, one of the things the film touches upon here is the idea that uh, women who don't appear to follow the same social conventions as others, women mm. who aren't like the other girls, are the ones who are going to be accused of witchcraft. In this case here, we're looking at a Puritan perspective that's embodied by the by the parents and here this is something about their daughter's burgeoning sexuality mm-hmm. that makes them uncomfortable something that uh, makes them feel that there's something wrong with her yes yeah, so, and but at the same time kind of ignoring the the issue from looking at the the, the elder son's point of view, um, Caleb. He he, uh, multiple times in the film eyes up his eyes up his sister's chest, mm-hmm. which is something that she becomes culpable for in the dialogue. Yes, yes. Um, I think the mother, especially uh, Catherine, makes mention of makes mention of that. You know, um, using your feminine wiles or, or whatever it was she said. Yeah, she she also immediately blames her after the son Samuel goes missing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that sort of plays into all the rest of the film. You, you see that sort of great mistrust, and perhaps she already had it for one de- to one degree or another towards uh, uh, Thompson prior to you know the events of this film. But with the exception of when William finally kind of fesses up and admits that uh, it was him who took the silver cup, but it, you know, whereas the mother Catherine was 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 blaming Thomason. That's the only kind of um, touching moment that I think she has with with her daughter in, in, in that um, in that scene. Yes, up until the point where she dies later. That's right, folks. We're doing full spoilers here. If you didn't notice the great big logo. Now with William, let's talk about William. 
Mm-hmm. I love the character. He's like, here's something so tragic here. He's got this fixed perspective that this Calvinist idea is correct, right? So as things get more and more wrong for him, all this does is make him feel like he's more and more right. Mm. And yet this is a guy who wants to sell out, literally sell out his own daughter at one point, you know? This is a guy who lets her take the blame as over this family heirloom, over this silver cup. And of course, when things continue to go wrong, well, it must have been because of that. You know, it's always something that can just be prayed away up until the end where he seems absolutely broken. He's a shit hunter. He's shit at growing crops. But what he can do is he can chop wood really well. Well, yes. I mean, there's, there's he's also willing to let his son lie for him as well and, and uh, when when they go out into the forest quite early on in the film uh, to hunt and the the, the mother's um, you know angry because they, they, they agree not to go into the woods and so on and and, and Caleb basically says they're uh, they're picking apples instead and you mentioned the 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 Calvinist um, angle there well one of the obviously key tenets is uh, the idea of original sin stemming from Garden of Eden. Uh, originally, and of course, you know what happens there—the the, the eating of of the apple from the the, the tree of knowledge—and so um, so the apple becomes kind of the the, the metaphor of apple picking, and then of course, you know, very shockingly, the um, in, in Caleb's death scene, oh, the apple yes. coming up from the mouth um, with a with the rotten apple coming up from the mouth uh, with a bite on it as well. Yeah, well, um, that boy's been corrupted now; he's been witched. I tell you what, I had never heard witched used as a verb until I first watched this film. Witched would probably be the more uh, usual way of, of 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 doing it. With William as well, for me, I mean, it, it, it's the pride element. Though we obviously don't see this family prior to coming to America uh, or even their time within the within the settlement before they, they get banished, you can see just this this pattern, obviously, of him being completely unwilling to compromise his his beliefs um so obviously he leaves england for for that reason uh, because he feels that the the church there like like the obviously the puritans more broadly that the 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 church wasn't upholding the values of of christ as they saw it and so initially a lot of these guys go to the netherlands but then they end up going to what we now call the united states to to new england in, in big numbers and that's a big thing to do for your principles um, it's one. It's it's big enough to do that sort of thing now for your principles to go abroad, to go to another country, but to cross the Atlantic in those days would be like almost akin to going to the moon. Of course, yeah, and also when you've got the fact that like once they do get across there, he says, "All right, we're going to leave the safe, the relative safety of the colony yes. in order to set up a farm." <laughs> and you're thinking, you imagine Thomason, who's the only one who seems quite bothered about all this, looks quite nervous as he's. Uh, given it all this in the courtroom. So even amongst people who are pretty, you know, hardline by the standards of the time and, and certainly compared to, I think, most Christians today in terms of their, their beliefs, he thinks they're, they're a bunch of softies. <laughs> and, uh, and we need to, I, I, I can't even work with them. I need to just take my family away from there. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's remarkable, but it's just again and again and again. And I mean, what's also clear is that originally they, they would have had, by the standards of the time, reading between the lines, a fairly comfortable life. Thomason remembers 
at one point the, the house back in England having glass windows. Very mm-hmm. few houses in England during that time had, 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 had any glass on their windows. And, and uh, the Catherine refers to the home they're, they're, they're in for most of the film as a hovel. So it, it shows a kind of downward spiral. And that also explains why the guy can't hunt or farm because it would have had, a, I think, a different job back in England. Um, would have perhaps been a skilled craftsman, a, a, a trader maybe, or even perhaps a kind of yeoman farmer uh, of some description, more from the sort of middling run of society at that point. It's really interesting because, yeah, when he's got that bit with the gun and it's apparent he's never used one of these before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, um, the, we get the feeling that he's, no, he's probably never done done a whole lot of this sort of farming before. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I totally agree with you the pride angle, but what makes it quite interesting for me is that he's got this complex as if he's like Job being tested here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, everything's a, a test of his faith. And and it's got to be justified at the end, because if it's not justified, then here's where pride comes in. He's fucked up majorly. He's made everyone leave this comfortable life into this really, really grim existence. We've got that after, uh, after Caleb dies. Well, firstly, you're thinking to lose one son, well, that's unfortunate, but to lose two, just carelessness. Uh, he... Uh, he goes outside and then decides to talk to Thomason about how nice the tree they have is. You know, this is a denial about what's going on. You see you see his wife coming up against this, having this crisis of faith because bad things keep happening. She doesn't want to be doing this any longer. And yet for him, this is more a sign that he's totally right to do it. Mm. Well, I mean, the way um, Catherine refers to herself as Job's wife at one stage in, in the film, I think it's when they're 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 talking in bed. It's that sense that um but but I'm still I'm still right. And the denial thing is is absolutely true. I think he's he's most skeptical about about the witch, but it's not because he doesn't believe in them. I think that the crucial line with William is I would I did not raise a witch in this house. So it's more the case that he he refuses to believe that he could have uh, possibly uh, done that rather than I don't believe in witches. It's uh, well, there are no witches in my household. I, you know, I'm a good father. And uh, <laughs> the uh, performance is brilliant. You know, I'd mm. only seen what's the guy's name. I'd only ever seen him in the office playing Chris Finch. Finch. Yeah, yeah, I'd seen him play Finch in the office, which is such a different performance. The know? actor's name's uh, Ralph Innocent. That's a one. Yes. And uh, here, you know, he's, uh, he, all of the actors really, they deliver this seven, this 1700s dialogue beautifully. So, uh, 1600s, sorry. 1600s, uh, sorry, yes. They deliver yeah. this 17th century <laughs> dialogue absolutely beautifully. And uh, with him, I just think it would be so easy just to play him as an arsehole. But he finds... A sim- mm. almost a sympathy in him, you know? He fi- like Things like pride, it's a fellow thing. You can play a fellow as just being dumb if you want, but he shouldn't be. You know, a fellow isn't stupid. He's monstrously insecure. Mm. Where there's a commendability about him is that he really sincerely believes he's doing the right thing. And this is why it's so tragic. You know, you've got some parents trying to save themselves and their children from eternity in hell and at the same time all of them end up dead and then one of them ends up becoming a witch at the end of it i think the guy genuinely does 
love his children as well. Um, I thought I thought one of the most touching scenes was it was it was him and and Caleb uh, when they were going hunting, and, and and Caleb breaks down and you know asking what what has happened to Sam. You know, is is he in heaven? Is he in hell? And it, it, it's so tragic because I think so much of William's problems is 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 the straight drag jacket of his own belief system to to a huge extent where he would he clearly in that moment would like nothing more than to tell his son yes uh, Samuel's Samuel's in heaven now we'll we'll we'll, we'll see him in time you know and and. And it's it's twisted in so many ways because, uh, and I don't want to get into this so much, but I'm not a religious person, but at all. But um, but um, my thinking would be that religion in those sorts of instances would would offer you some level of comfort, the idea of the afterlife and seeing your loved ones again. But because of this belief system and the idea that if babies are not baptized, that they'll end up in hell or or, or some form of purgatory, he can't tell his son that that, that, that it's going to be okay or or uh, or his or his wife. And I, th- I found that just true that's that's what people who held who would have held held those beliefs would have would have been thinking and uh, would have had to wrestle with absolutely that sequence where he's taking caleb out you know caleb looks so tiny with his absolutely massive gun here and there's something about the idea of him trying to sort of sculpt this boy into his idea of a man here but at the same time he can't teach him from a long tradition of having done this himself. You know, this isn't, isn't like Bear Grylls <laughs> raising his kid here. You know, this is a guy who's essentially making it up as he goes along. And you're completely right that there is something really quite, really touching about that scene. There is something really touching that he he can't give his child that comfort. But at the same time, it's that sincere belief that he's doing the right thing. And one of the big themes of this movie, I guess, is what does it mean to be a good person? We see at the beginning Thomason, who's a black sheep of the family, because she's the one who wants to return to the colony. She's the one who, the only one who looks back when they're on the cart. Then we see her praying later, you know, with with feelings of guilt that she's expressing, presumably this doubting of her own family here. The interesting thing is that she's someone who's having this crisis of faith, where she really wants to be okay with things. She really wants to believe what her dad is saying here but she knows that it's it's not good you know in in a way what we have is quite a it's a very unconventional way of telling a coming of age story here and for her it's that finding liberation which she does in a very unconventional manner and we'll talk later about the ending and what sort of impression that leaves but I really liked the contrast between the dad kind of steadfast confidence in all of this. And then you've just got her wanting the same kind of sense of righteousness that he has. She clearly, at least at the start and, you know, perhaps for throughout most of the film has has these has this belief. But uh, the, the challenges and everything that, that comes with, with, with what goes on. And I, I, I was actually, I was, yeah, so I was thinking um, to ask you how to read this film, because in, in my view, there, there's one or two ways, whether we sort of look at it purely as a, 
as a folktale because I, I can imagine a Puritan father or, or, or grandfather you know, gathering the young ones around the fire and sort of telling this tale or a version of it as a kind of a warning uh, uh, to them. The idea of um, corruption and pride wintering this family and it becomes a, a way for the devil, for the, the, the witches to, to come at them. But at the same time, if you go down that road, you, you also have to acknowledge the sort of nods and the winks, I think, to a modern audience, which, although you have the reveal of the witch very early on as, as being real, perhaps uh, say, here's what could really have been going on with, with the craze of witchcraft, the potentially blighted corn, which can cause hallucinations, but also... Uh, the twin gossiping and making up stuff mm. about witches, you then them perhaps in a if they were in a village at least running off and telling them about so and so being a witch or, or or what have you. So I was wondering how 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 you kind of handled um, that that idea. Okay, so I think you're right. There's quite a few kind of winks and nods to contemporaneous society. I think for me, the most important part of the film comes in through the, uh, I suppose I suppose it's through the liberation angle for me. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I think this film is so effective, a bit like with The Shining, you have this pressure cooker atmosphere, the uh, dad with the axe, and the tension revolves around how long is he going to hold on for before he tries to kill his kid? And for me, the thing that just stuck with me was that, we're talking earlier about the kind of the psychological dimension of this seems to really revolve around the idea of confirmation bias you know that everything that happens here for him is a sign of his own righteousness and the further in that he gets the worse this this confirmation bias becomes to the point where he's like i'm gonna put all my kids away into uh, we're gonna cage them off from the rest of this uh, farm you know he's now become terrified of them but I'd sort of thought, you know, for me, the what we have here is a really good piece of suspense and dread. Dread mm-hmm. that at some point is going to go over the edge. Now, as a modern audience, we are naturally going to be sympathizing with Thomason because she's there in a society where she is deeply repressed. You know, she's in there in a society in which she's just going to be sold off to another family in order to help her family here. You know, she's going to be used as a means to an end here. Where it goes is ultimately not a happy ending. It's not like a ghost sister kind of thing. No. But still, when she signs up with the devil by at the end of it, she knows what she's doing here. She wanted to quash her doubts about God throughout the course of the film. She wanted to be okay with accepting the social role, but she isn't. She can't cast Wavy's doubt. She can't just conform and do what her family wants. So it struck me as she's like, been, she's been wrestling for faith. And by then she's going, I just wanted the love from God. And what the fuck do I actually have left here? You know, everyone is dead here. She's only one of them that, feel, that feels bad about a lack of faith here. The others are all sure and they're all dead. And so when she signs up with the devil, when she decides to join the covenant at the end, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing. She's gaining a level of liberation and freedom that she'd never have enjoyed at home there, you know? 
Sexually and socially, she can choose her next step forward, and that's something that she didn't have at the beginning. She couldn't choose to say, no, I'm going to stay in the colony. You know, she couldn't yeah. choose to say, no, I'm not going off with that family here. She can't even defend herself and say, by the way, it was my dad that stole this family heirloom. So, and Well, also- she... Mm. Sorry, she didn't. Uh, sorry, I mean, it's a small point. I mean, I, I agree with all of that, really, but it was just a small point about that. I don't think she knew that her dad stole it. So I, I, you're probably right that if she did know, she still probably wouldn't have been able to, felt able to do that. Um, but I don't think she knew. That's more of it. Okay, yeah, that's more it, that, she, that she's immediately blamed for it here. That's right, yeah. You know, and uh, the bit where she's teasing kids, Jonas and Mercy, who must have yes. a rubbish childhood, you know, they're, uh, they're pointing her going, she's a witch. And then she's like, yes, I am. You know, she's she's relishing it. She's empowered. You know, mm. she likes the idea of people fearing her rather than people dominating her rather than her being scared of other people. It's great that she leaves the shackles of this kind of oppressive system. You know, she takes her clothes off at the end and that's her liberation, casting that away. But at the mm. same time, She's joining a group where she'll be subjugating others instead of being subjugated. It's not happy ending by any means, but for me, that kind of modern interpretation of it is what sticks out. That's that's a great way of of, of, of reading it too. I think that with um, with the Jonas and Mercy, where where she kind of tries to you know scare them and so on, um, is also going back to some you know something I said earlier where. Um, you know, you can imagine how, you know, tittle-tattle, you know, gossip about, you know, people claiming to be witches, something like that, you know, I'm certain would have been misconstrued by something, by someone and then brought up at a court, you know, and, and about about witchcraft. And, you know, with, with Salem, which is the most famous uh, witchcraft trials, at least within America, um, early America, they th- those rumours were kicked off by, by girls when uh, who were only 11 or 12 years old. Um, so you can you can see that as well on a, on a, on a very basic level. And again, a kind of modern, uh, a nod and a wink to the modern audience as to you know how these things can spiral out of control and so on. One thing I was thinking that's quite dark about the ending. Um, they make a wee reference in the, I think it's in, there was in the scene where they're singing the Black Phillip song and then saying, "Ha, ah, she's a witch and stuff like that." Right. So the um, witches say in the seventeenth century. I believe his stories went that they would need the boiled fat of children to help them fly, right? So she is at the end flying as a consequence of her brother and sister. Yes, they don't show you that scene, obviously, but um, I guess you can, it doesn't take too much to read between the lines. And, and you did see the witch, you know, with Samuel earlier, disemboweling him and then flying. And this, uh, so now with Black Philip, mm-hmm. so we know from the song that he's all seeing, he's all conquering, I believe, that they say, right? Is the usage of the goat here, do you know, is this something that's generally associated with witchcraft, or is this explicitly tying it to a Judeo Christian tradition? I, I think it's more explicitly the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when you see images of. Satan as well, cloven hooves and everything. And I, I think that, um, you know, reading between the lines in that song, and, and again, the amazing thing is I, 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 I noted down, you know, a chunk of that and, you know, went on to see if it was, you know, like a, 
a real nursery rhyme or something, but it but it's not. It was it was uh, created. It was written uh, by Eggers um, and devised by Eggers. The reason with the lines, I think that you know you you could construe that um, you could um, consider that as almost an invocation to uh, of the devil himself and. Um, and I think that the, the 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 bits about defeating lions and, and things like that, you know, so so obviously not an ordinary goat having certain powers and all the rest of it. I think is, and that's the reveal at the end. Of course, you know that you see actually at the end, you know, the goat turn into a man and turn into you know a black clad man and uh, and Satan himself, most most likely. I believe with the uh, the goat, the goat was a total prick in real life, wasn't he? He, he he was. He put uh, Ralph Benson in the R three times uh, during that shoot. So I think he, he dislocated a tendon uh, uh, with one of um, with one of its butts. You know, so really didn't like uh, uh, working with that with that goat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, grim as hell! Like it's a spooky looking goat, I will say as well. Oh yeah, no, he was, he was an effective nemesis. Uh, you can't, as far as other films with creepy goats go, I'm thinking of uh, Drag Me to Hell's got a, got, a, got a possessed goat at one point. It's much more cuddly, though. Now, one of the best scenes of a film, and in fact, Robert Eggers said that this is, for him, the key scene of the entire piece, is this scene where Caleb dies. So Caleb's just come back. We've got this single sustained shot of him where he has this moment of uh, of ecstasy before he finally ceases to breathe. And for me, that was such a brilliant scene. It was it was fantastic. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, the cast and so on, people I think most often talk about, with, with good reason, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy and... Um, and Ralph Innison, but uh, the 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 young man who plays uh, Caleb in that scene especially was uh, really good. I mean, and I think uh, all that dialogue was more or less real. You know, it was uh, from what I've heard at any rate um, from some historical source. And yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, it's, you could argue it's kind of a complete contrast between what happens with Caleb versus what happens with Thomason. At the end of the film, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, with Caleb, he he has a moment of salvation there, whereas yes. obviously, as you said, she's going the complete opposite direction. Because something I was wondering, right? Do you reckon that the movie, to an extent, actually vindicates the parents here? Because a lot of these sort of possession films, which is ostensibly is a possession film, it's based upon the assumption that there is a literal devil in this. And, you know, some people say, oh, it's the corn making them hallucinate. You go, yeah, did they hallucinate the scenes where none of them were present, eh? You know, I, I appreciate <laughs> that one yeah. could... You know, I appreciate that, that, that uh, one could take the interpretation, fair enough. But, you know, for me, it's not it's not an ambiguous film. And I don't think it's any... I don't think that's in any way harms it. You know, plenty of great films are not ambiguous films. But... Do you think it's yeah, appearance? I mean, with the corn thing, just just uh, quick quickly on that. I, I I mean, I see that as more of a kind of nod to the nod and wink, rather than like this is what happened sort of thing, mm. you know. Where, because it, 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 there's there's real historical um, analysis which has happened regarding um, the effects of 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 that bad corn upon the early 17th century colonists and so on. So, but it's it's no more than that. I think what was more important for Eggers was was um, was you know 
pushing the immersion angle forward so that rather than us looking at this as a modern audience and going, oh, come on, there's no witch, dad, come on, you know, um, more sort of putting ourselves in the shoes of them, you know, who genuinely, as I mentioned earlier, believe in all, all this stuff. And so it makes us, you know, sort of say, well, look, there, there is a witch here. I, I see that as being more important with, with the parents. You know, if we if we look at this again, like um, looking at it from like the Puritan folktale angle, I'd still say that in, in that scenario, the parents aren't actually vindicated because, you know, if, if we go down that road, they're the ones who kind of let standards slip and, you know, lies and all the rest of it come forth, jealousy, covetedness mm. and all that. So in that angle, they're, they're actually not vindicated, in, in my view. You know, you're right, because I suppose the other thing is these problems wouldn't necessarily be happening to them if they'd stayed in the colony either. They're the ones yes. who make yes. themselves vulnerable. In fact, when you have Thomason in particular, in particular is vulnerable there. And you go, okay, well, she's in a situation where she's being ordered to clean her dad's clothes after he dirties them, the selfish prick. And it, I, whilst I'm not suggesting for a moment here that the witch represents some sort of pro progressive modern day feminism, I think that it appears to be taking advantage of someone who can be scapegoated by her family, someone who's distant from her family, and uh, someone who's, in this case, going into womanhood. In fairness, we don't know what the relationship was like uh, between Thomason and her parents, you know, prior to Samuel's disappearance, um, to any great extent. And obviously, the blaming of her for that for that tragedy um, obviously colours the relationship between um, between Catherine and, and, and Thomason. But I think you can surmise that these these things are already there, and and that combined with everybody being cooped up in this farm in the middle of nowhere and all the rest of it just just causes it to break down. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think what we can interpret is that she's less okay with it than others. We open on her face in the courtroom here, and she's the one who's worried. Mm. The rest of the family aren't. The rest of the family are like, yeah, right on, go, Dad. She's like, fucking Dad. She's <laughs> like, oh, he's going to get us kicked out, isn't he? Damn yeah. it, I was enjoying the colony. <laughs> it was also, uh, you know, the way it was at least phrased in the courtroom, he kind of talked himself into that one, where... Um, well, you'll be banished then. It's like, oh, fine. You know, and, and, and <laughs> he's, like, he's like a guy, <laughs> 10 years, I could do that on my head. <laughs> Anya Taylor-Joy has, of course, done, done a lot of other stuff. Uh, recently, we've had her appearing in The Queen's Gambit, which is a fantastic show. She's done uh, The New Mutants, which was a less than fantastic superhero film your favorite your favorite genre oh um, yes, yes. I, I believe she's done peaky blinders which i've never watched uh dark mm. crystal uh she's in split glass an excellent version of pride and prejudice the point is she's had a hell of a career i've really liked seeing her emerge as an actor you know and there's something really nice about her making her debut or well not her, actually her debut is her feature debut in this relatively small scale horror film yes i mean well well i i i hadn't heard of her before uh the, this film but um yeah it certainly seems to have been a 
a breakout for her. Um, and she is also going to be in Eggers' latest uh, film, which I think they, they finished filming at the end of last year, uh, The Northman. Um, yes. she's, she's going to be part of that, along with Ralph, Ralph Innocent, I think. Um, yeah, and also William Defoe. Mm-hmm. Defoe. So yeah, uh, we'll come to that later on. Uh, she's also going to be in uh, Last Night in Soho, the upcoming Edgar Wright film she's also going to be in. So I'd genuinely say she's one of my favourite performers. She's got a very good screen presence about her. And uh, yeah, uh, she's very good in this. You know, She's a very good sympathetic lead in this movie. But with Robert Eggers, you know, I, I don't know how small scale this operation would have been, but there's not really star power here. You know, he's like when he plays Catherine, she's probably best known for Game of Thrones, right? Uh, Kate Dickey, yeah. Um, Scottish actress. Um, yeah, I mean, she's uh, Red Road, which was which was a big independent film, at least in Scotland, oh, about, about shit, uh, yeah. 10 years ago, I think. That's uh, with all the CCTV, isn't it? That's right, the Red Road Flats. I think she's in Filth as well, actually, and, uh, and Prometheus, but yeah, she's, ne- right. she's, she's never in a particularly big role in these films, so except for well, Red Road, she, I think she was the lead, right? So She was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, she's she's great, absolutely great in this as well. You know, it's. Uh, uh, but the thing is, it's a, they're a really strong ensemble. They work they work brilliantly together. They play a believable family unit. Mm. And I think that that you know part of that, uh, from what I've heard about the the, the shooting of, of of the film, was um, they were more or less in reality um, kind of isolated. Um, he, he wanted to film initially in New England, but. They couldn't find anywhere quite um, remote enough for for his purposes, and I think he also, you know, wanted to build things and all the rest of it to do with the the farm and everything. So they go to Canada. They go to quite a remote part of uh, Ontario in, in in Canada, and uh, they're staying in this this very small town with one motel. They take over the motel for a month or so. They're all kind of living together within this motel anyway, outside of outside of filming. So. You know, it's very easy. You know, when when you have that those sorts of scenarios for that um, sense of kind of family, I suppose, or uh, to 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 come to the fore, and also that sense of isolation to to come to the fore as well when 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 making the film. Robert Eggers spoke to horror cult films back when this film was coming out. He's nowadays probably too famous, but if you are listening to this, Robert, you're always welcome back on our website. Now I believe you were saying that as they were making this, they they went they went to like uh, one of those sort of open air museum type places, right? Well, no, um, of Massachusetts. No, um, um, with that, uh, this is if you if you're an American and especially if you're in New England, it's the the Plymouth or um, they, they use the arcane spelling uh, plantation, you know, which is a kind of open air. Um, Living history, uh, sort of, um, sort of museum where they they recreated seventeenth uh, century uh, colonial village as well as I think now uh, uh, a Native American uh, village too. 
and um, and Eggers, you know, grew up in New England, not not that far from there, um, in in New Hampshire, so just over the border from Massachusetts, and went there a lot as 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 uh, as a kid, um, and found it really interesting. And you know, funnily enough, I you know it was it was strange looking at this when when I was getting ready for the podcast because I realised I, I I remembered I had had, had gone there as well on, uh, when we were on a family holiday. Um, God, depressingly, it'd be now about 18 years ago um, to to New England, myself and my family. Uh, we had a we had a nicer time than uh, uh, Thomas and <laughs> uh, over the course of that period. <laughs> Although it wouldn't be hard. And uh, yeah, we visited that place, um, and yeah, really, really interesting. Well, well put together. Um, not in a corny way either, you know, which it can be sometimes these sorts of places, you know. I'm, she wasn't all like, all like, oh, hee-ho, hello there, etc. Yeah, but, but doing people... genuine things, you know, building things, uh, you know, churning butter, you know, that, that sort of thing Did as well. Did they stay in character if you asked them a question? Yes, yes, they, they did. And, you know, one of them showed, them around, showed us around, as I recall, and... Yeah, so um, so if you're ever in that, that part of the world, you know, or haven't been, uh, head over, I, I, I'd say. Uh, so, let's see, anything else I want to say about this film? Something that I have not yet complimented is the soundtrack, which is really, really good. Mm. In fact, it is for the Lighthouse as well, which we'll be coming to in a wee bit. We have this wonderful combination of period instruments, but then this kind of modern avant-garde-style compositions. It's very kind of ethereal music that we're getting here. I love the sort of chanting that we get throughout it as well, and as it builds towards your crescendo. It's, I thought that was fantastic. You know, a lot of the time with soundtracks, if a soundtrack's doing its job, you either don't notice it, notice it at all, or you really fucking notice it, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is the latter. I mean, it's also, it, it's tricky with kind of period films, historical films, you know, what do you do regarding the soundtrack? Do you bring in modern songs, but if you're not careful, they can stick out like sore thumbs? Or um, do you focus exclusively on um, sort of period pieces, but then again, you know, to a modern audience, do they, do they sound, you know, good and incredible? Um, so I thought that the way he did it was 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 great um you know keeping it very simple um in terms of what what you hear um even to the point where it's almost rather than being music it's, it's just noises that you could hear outside you know sort of aping that copying that um but just and, and spine tingling at the end i will say you know um i i thought the, the piece at the end was was bang on you know and, and complemented what was on screen uh, amazingly well yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else you want to be bringing in about this movie? Anything else about this that really stuck out to yourself? It's not so much a, a criticism, but you know, a, a slight weakness with with it was uh, just given how otherwise historically immersive it was. Um, I thought it, it was strange for the absence of of interaction with uh, Native American people um, within the, within the film. Which would, in in um, especially New England at, at that point in early American history, have been uh, very extensive, and you know, very strange that they would have left the sort of confines of uh, the settlement uh, early on in the film, and, and not have had um, any any interaction. And I, I know that you know potentially, if you if you were, um, if he was to to um, 
to get into that um, level of, of interaction and so on, whether you're adding yet another element to this film. There's plenty of elements to get to, to delve into as, as he does. But for me, it would have been um, what could have sort of avoided that being sticking out for me was more, you know, even just like one or two comments that why have you picked here, William? You know, Catherine or someone would say, you know, even the, the native people don't don't live here or or whatever. It just it just felt very strange for the absence. Um, and you know, so so in the film, you know, we only saw a couple of Native American people going into the settlement at, at the very beginning, and then a kind of throwaway reference to Indian magic uh, by by Catherine uh, when Caleb is sick. Um, so it just it, it just felt a little odd that 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 they didn't um, they didn't have that. That's a really interesting point. That because I, I mean I don't know if Eggers was just wanting to keep this kind of microcosm here. Yeah, saying hey, we're going to keep this as small scale as you reasonably can because except for the very start and the very end, we don't really get other people in the movie. We have the witch herself who takes a form of the sexy younger woman and a more traditional old hag later on in it as well but you know we don't see him interacting when he's doing things like swapping a family heirloom for a gun hmm. or anything along those lines i just think in terms of acknowledging the absence you know would have would have solved that for me or at least gone gone a, while, a long way but it was something that i you know, I'll, I'll admit I, I didn't notice uh, the, uh, the first time I watched the film, you know, but uh, looking back, I thought, well, but surely, surely they would have had interaction, you know, especially, you know, especially at that point. And, you know. Now, folks, another thing that I enjoyed with this was the use of natural lighting and, of course, the atmosphere of a terrifying night. <laughs> there's gales aplenty and there's all sorts of Spooky, natural, noisy. So if I liked that in The Witch, you can bet that I liked it in our next movie. We are going to go forward a couple of hundred years, or yeah, a couple hundred yep. years, yeah. uh, to go to the end of the 19th century, where we will be in The Lighthouse. Hark! Hark! Triton! Hark! Hello! Bid our father, the Sea King, rise from the depths full, foul in his fury. Black waves teeming with salt foam to smother this young mouth with punch and slime. To choke ye, engorging your organs till ye turn blue and bloated with builds and brine and can scream no more. Only when he, crowned in cockle shells, with slithering tentacle tail. The Lighthouse! Alright, Gainsey, let's spill our beans. <laughs> I personally like this even more than The Witch. The Witch, for me, is a five-star film. The Lighthouse is a better five-star film. This, more so than almost any other film I've seen, probably even ever, really puts you into the headspace of its characters. From the very beginning, we have this imposing from the foghorn before we even mm. see the lighthouse, before we even see the characters, before we see anything, we hear it. And that horn doesn't stop blowing for the entire duration of the movie. 
then, like you were saying there, the natural sounds, you've got the waves, the gulls, the winds, got the noises of the toilets, the farting, you know, before they even sit down and have a conversation with each other. It really, really was an immersive experience, this one. The soundtrack was every bit as special as it was in The Witch as well. Yes, I... I wouldn't go quite as I mean I. It's more uh, it's more just how much esteem I have for the first film, and I, I'd say they're for me they're they're pretty level. You know, for me they're they're and I know you've you said earlier five uh, both five star films for you. I think they're they're pretty much in the same league for me. I I guess for me, and, and this is just a kind of more personal kind of point as to why. I, I kind of take this approach um, is for me, the witch um, was better about kind of delving into this era and this, this world that the Puritans in general inhabited. I'd say on paper, the, the, the lighthouse is a kind of um, better horror, um, but it wasn't quite as, Immers- uh, as well-roundedly immersive, if that's in any way a phrase, um, the lighthouse for me as 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 the witch, because you're getting into very specific territory and even more insular, of course, which is obviously part of a massive area of the film. But uh, no, I I still absolutely loved it. You know, a really really good film that, um, for somewhat sad reasons, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to even more. In over the last year or so, um, mm. with lockdown and and everything, yeah, I think it's interesting to see it's probably it's more successful as a horror film because to me, I think with the witch there's much more of a a suspense narrative to the witch and versus the lighthouse. A lot of the lighthouse mm. is about boredom. A lot of the lighthouse is about is about loneliness, and a lot of it, I could easily see people dismissing this as a movie in which nothing happens, which. The Witch has a much more straightforward source of tension. Mm. I suppose yeah, with the lighthouse, we're maybe thinking, well, one of these characters might kill the other at some point. They could go either way. Which one's going to snap first? But mm-hmm. I think with the Witch, there's much more of a sense of vulnerability about Thomason than there is about either of these two guys. And to be honest, she's probably more likable than either of these two guys. Yeah, that's. I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, you know, I think. Especially right from this, especially with, um, well, you've got the spoilers alert, Ephraim Stroke Thomas, um, you do get the sense more or less right from the start that this is kind of a sketchy guy. And, you know, um, and, and, and even though you, you are actually meant to feel quite sorry for him, you know, I think one of the most relatable aspects of, of, of this film, although, you know, very few of us could really imagine what it's like to work in a 19th century lighthouse. We can all imagine having a crap job. Um, <laughs> and, um, and no more than imagine, we've, we've, most people have done at least one or two in their lives, if not more. And uh, and being under the thumb of, of quite a, a pernickety and uh, <laughs> boss that at the same time frustratingly plays by his own damn rules. Yes, yes. Because with, with William Dafoe, right? There's something just so funny about his performance in this. You know, there's a lot of black comedy that I think comes out of how much of a dick he is. You know, he's got this this uh, division of labour that's completely on his side here. 
Mm. You know, you've got uh, Rob Patterson's character, Winslow. We've got him lugging a wheelbarrow around left, right, and center. <laughs> you know, well, you've got Thomas just hanging up there by the light for most of his shift. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's just something really funny about this idea of what if you were stuck in an island? Would you ever be stuck by yourself or with him? Right? <laughs> 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 it's a great point. Um, like it's a hell is other people thing, you know. <laughs> In this case, that's his companion. I think, especially for for a lot of people, and uh, I'll be honest, myself included, you know, if it it's it's got to be a choice. Uh, if it's a choice between one person or uh, one other person, you know, that's that's a hell of a thing. It, it's more easy if there's maybe another guy there, you know, mm. because obviously if you end up having tensions uh, between one person and another, if you've got another uh, person there, then it becomes a little easier. And and the really interesting thing for me about is, is that there's there is um, an inspiration for uh, for what transpires here, you know, um, a real uh, event, the so-called Smalls Lighthouse Tragedy of 1801, uh, where, where, which um, Eggers, I think, has said was proved to be a, a massive inspiration for it. Uh, two lighthouse keepers, both called uh, keepers, both called Thomas, uh, incidentally, in this lighthouse, twenty miles uh, off the coast of Wales. Um, uh, they don't like each other to begin with, according to the narrative. You know, one of them was quite a was a teetotaler and uh, very religious, whereas the other was a non-believer and a heavy drinker. So you can see, you know. and they they and one of them ends up dying, you know, um, in a freak accident, and um, and the other, but the other's got to stay with him because of the storm that hits the hits the island, and they can't get off. So so he ends up worrying about if he can't just dump the body in the sea because then the the like the the authorities might think he killed him so he ends up building this makeshift coffin and having it strapped to the side of the lighthouse during the storm you know and then outside so he doesn't have to look at it but it's still attached so it doesn't go away but he's driven mad apparently by the arm of this man slipping out when the coffin kind of breaks up in the in the storm hitting the window almost as if he's beckoning him yeah, and funnily enough, Edgar Allan Poe wrote uh, or started writing at least uh, the Lighthouse, uh, which was uh, a short story that he had in mind. But he was meant to have died before he, he finished it. In, so, in something that shows further connections here, Robert Eggers, one of his very early works, was a short film based upon the Telltale Heart. Now. Mm. And Hansel and Gretel, you know, the idea of woods and not going into the woods and... and oh, uh, shit, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I see yeah. this. Now, from the get-go, aside from this is a horrible guy to be stuck with here, I'm just going to be calling him Winslow just for sheer simplicity. You're about to call him R-Pats. You can take it well, how you want. Funnily enough, what they what they did, the, the, the crew was old and young. But it brings me to something actually where we do, part of the reason this is so awkward, I guess, is the intergenerational conflict we have here. You've mm. got an old pissed off Captain Birdseye there. <laughs> then there's a guy who's probably one of the younger uh, um, of the younger end of the lighthouse keeper spectrum, who's played by someone who's famous for being good looking. And there's just something immediately like, what the fuck is he doing here? You know, he makes reference to this about him, like, being younger, being handsome. 
And then asks him, well, what are you up to? He's, he gives this thing about, oh, you need to go off, get some work, whatever. And old Thomas knows he's lying. You know, he says, same old boring story, BS. He knows that if a young guy is going to be going off to the lighthouse by choice, he's running away from something. Mm. Yes, and obviously that that more or less plays into the kind of homoeroticism that, that's very present in, in the film as well. You know, you're as pretty as a picture and all that sort of stuff. I, I mean, for me, you know, what, what, what it brought to mind was a Melville novel, but not Captain Ahab, which which not a Moby Dick with Captain Ahab, which gets referenced as well, but uh, Billy Budd, you know, which is weirdly referenced in The Sopranos. Yes, of, that's uh, right. Which is also a it was a very homoerotic novel, I believe. Uh, yeah, it has that that that, um, that subtext to it. Um, so, so you had that element. Um, for those of you who might not be familiar with um, Captain Birdseye, <laughs> he was referenced earlier. Um, he was used. He's used to sell. The character used to sell fish fingers and other such products to children in the UK. Um, ah, yes, yes. But, uh, in case any of our American audience felt alienated by that comment. Yeah. Now, uh, just, yeah. He references that the last lightkeeper, and this would be a red flag when you first get to the island and he's saying this, the last uh, light, uh, lighthouse keeper that he had with him went insane and then died. Do yes. you reckon Thomas killed him? I think it's it's certainly possible. I mean, there's I think there's there's a couple of readings though you can have on it where if you go down the the, the whole the full bore supernatural element where there generally is some enchantment in the light, you could look at what Willem Dafoe does. You know, for a large part of the film, is almost kind of protecting him. You know, stay away from the light. You know, um, I, I tend the light, and you know. So, if, if that's the case, then what he's doing is not so much being a, a selfish old prick and wanting to avoid manual labor during the day, but <laughs> but rather <laughs> keeping him away from this um, from this this malevolent light. You know, um, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think there's there's multiple ways you can look at this, um, but I think it's. And also then when, when things get crazier and crazier, you know, as the film rolls on and which version of events do you buy? Um, because they're both saying different things about what's going on at various times later later on in the film. I took it that old Thomas didn't kill the last keeper that you had. I think the guy did go insane. I think he went insane because of old Thomas. And we probably saw the exact same dynamic of him going, no, you stay away from the light. I don't think it's about trying to protect people. I think he's just like a, a big man-sized moth who's obsessed with the light and wants it all for him. And this is why we get the... Uh, this is why we get the, these kind of illusions uh, throughout the story of Prometheus, you know, him being the trickster that manages to... Uh, manages to get the light from God, although Prometheus and this isn't trying to give the light to the people like I believe he was in the original story. However, yes. he does still have a very similar uh, ending of lying there with his guts open being pecked away at for all eternity mm. by birds. With Defoe, though, I think um, an inspiration, at least in terms of how he, how he looks, and there are similarities here uh, between him and uh, Proteus, um, who was uh, 
not the sea god of uh, of ancient Greek mythology, and that's Poseidon, but uh, certainly a sea or, or river god who um, is also blessed with the power of prophecy, um, mm. can see into the future. Um, and, and Willem Dafoe kind of does that at, at certain points in this film. You know, uh, when, he, when he curses um, uh, Ephraim Winslow uh, of our Tom, um, and at one point, even there's quite a sinister uh, bit when they're when he's singing softly to him just before they they almost kiss. I will. Um, what was the, the quote here? But I will give her my liver. Oh, nice catch, sir! I did not pick up on that. Well, this point about where they almost kiss, right? Mm. Clearly. Clearly, there's, I don't even know if you could call it a gay subtext. I mean, it's just essentially text. You've got two <laughs> men inside this gigantic phallus by themselves with a, a weird kind of... They go between being father and son and being husband and wife at different intervals in the movie. One of my, uh, my favourite bits of it is... The conversation about, you know, you were fond of my lobster. Just yes. say it. Which is like the I faked every orgasm sort of argument we're having here, you know? And also the, I mean, the substitutes for a certain organ for a certain foodstuff, you know, oysters or snails from uh, the film Spartacus mm. probably being the most uh, well-known example of, of of that kind of kind of metaphor. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's I mean, it's, it's not, quite explicit but it's pretty it's more than implicit this is what i create the backing story here where young tom killed the real winslow yeah. right but i also read between the lines that the two of them had been lovers yes um i think the key for that is um one of the the masturbation scenes where he thinks about the mermaid at first but then what pops into his head is is the the blonde head of the real Winslow for yes. for for a moment. So got a lot of shame here. He's a guy who's trying to he's trying to climax in what he sees as a heterosexual way. So he's you know he's got this little mermaid toy that he's essentially having a wank over. Uh, but then we get like the thoughts of we've got the lighthouse itself spinning in, which I believe originally that was going to cut to an erect penis as well after the shot. Yes, he was talked out of that, though, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> um, the tentacles, which are obviously quite phallic. And then again, also relate to Proteus. Yes, uh, that, yes. That's how he appears with, with, with tentacles. And then, then you have even where he is like a kind of sea creature, you know, in Patterson's mind towards the very end of the film where they're fighting, I think. Mm. Yes, and uh, also we've got those tentacles appearing where it sounds like old Tom is upstairs masturbating beside the light. You know, <laughs> he just hears him moaning gently to himself and these tentacles going past, whoosh, uh, along with when he's trying to picture having having sex with a woman and then, you know, she turns into a... She's got a fish bottom here, which he can't get himself into. Like, I found this kind of denial of his sexuality really interesting in it. I thought the symbolism, I suppose, of him going into what's the equivalent of a, of the of the tool cupboard here, going into the closet to do this. If I wonder for what the fuck moments... Considering they have a bedroom that admittedly they share, but they do not sleep at sep- they do not sleep at the same time. 
it's weird that he chooses to go outside to do that in the shed. Now, I was thinking when old Thomas is leaning up there by the light and sees Winslow leaving the tool shed late at night, he knows what's going on in there. <laughs> you know, he, he makes reference later to uh, frequent self-abuse going on in that tool shed. <laughs> He's like, oh, I... Yeah. That's in the the logbook, uh, where he, where which um, which uh, Will, uh, Wimslow stroke Tom reads at the reads at the end, and an interesting thing that I heard, I think in the in the commentary uh, for the lighthouse was there were other sentences in that logbook which were were cut, and one I think quite a revealing one was he frightens me, and, and apparently again these these phrases were from real logbooks. Including the, the self abuse because huh. um, you know we're looking at a society at that point where there would be such a social stigma about being about being gay, um, and you're also looking at a situation where the two of them are in a very intimate place. Do it's just them as the only source of company of each other. Uh, well, not just a social stigma, of course, but in, in many countries, including the, the United States at that point, it, it's illegal. It also got me thinking of, uh, you know, the reference to Sopranos earlier, where you've got Tony with a similar kind of toxic masculinity to the characters in this, saying like, oh, well, you know, you get a free pass if you're in jail. And I was wondering if you take the same thing that you get a free pass if you're stuck in a lighthouse with just one other person kind of inevitability you know with within that time and at a point where you had sort of mini societies of, of basically being all men you know and, and not just within these lighthouses but the navy you know which um which uh, thomas wake was was in for before becoming a lighthouse keeper and indeed if you're stuck in the very north of canada uh presumably um with with no one else really around uh, cutting down trees, as 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 Wimslow was was doing earlier. Yeah, this is true. They uh, they both choose jobs that necessitate isolation. I suppose one of the differences here, if if we can believe what he says with old Thomas, we know that he's got a family. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he references, he references he's, he's, been, he's been away for 13 years, I believe, he says, or he was away for 13 years or 13 Christmases. I took that as he was away continuously, or at least he was away for most of the year each year. <laughs> I mean, what do you think is his motivation? Why is he there? I mean, he makes reference about not having a good relationship with his wife, you know, at, at one stage saying, I think, about the Navy or the sea that um, a finer mistress than ever I had with my wife or uh, what I, I'm misquoting, but that's more or less the gist of it. Um, and doing an appalling kind of McAllister <laughs> uh, kind of voice there as well. But I think that's certainly uh, part of it, not, not having a, 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 a good relationship, but I'm not, I'm again, I'm, I'm not so sure, you know, I, I can think a couple of ways on, on this one, to be honest. I mean, I was unsure about, what got me into into specifically, although I did think a large part of the tension they had was that for old Thomas, this had been his way of life for presumably decades. You know, mm-hmm. this is presumably all he really knew. Yeah, and the idea of his cocky young upstart coming along that struck me as an interesting tension there. And mm-hmm. you know, he's not going to be 
accommodating this guy. They had to share a room, you know, they had to share a toilet together. And he's not going to put up with this guy being a recovering alcoholic. Well, they wouldn't have had the concept of alcoholism per se at that point, Mm -hmm. at least not the same awareness that we would have of it now. But at the beginning, young Thomas specifically references that he's trying to give up drinking. Now, presumably the alcohol is something that will have pushed him towards killing the real Winslow. He says a guy was ragging on him. I wonder if he were driving along and Winslow is trying to make him like saying, look, what happened last night or what's been what we've been up to lately. I want to carry on with this. And this guy's in such denial that he's been boozing, he kills him. And yeah, that's why, that's the sort of backing story that I took from this. So for him, it's a really big deal that he's stuck in this island where he's not got any source of water because you know, he boozed because it's cleaner here. You know, yes, but, and, and you know, one of the, you know, the, the bird obviously contaminates uh, the water, you know, halfway through. And even before that, the water was bad. He has to, pour all this chalk into into the water at one stage to make it semi-drinkable. Although, you know, I, I think that you can divide the film into almost two uh, coherent halves between when uh, young Thomas starts, uh, isn't drinking for the first half, and then when he when he absolutely is. Um, and, and for me, it's a remarkable shift, you know, because the the tone changes so much, you know, it goes from being quite a sort of slow pace kind of thing to getting crazier and crazier, you know, and it, it kind of shows both sides for me of, 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 of drinking where all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're in, at least on the surface, better spirits, you know, they're laughing and, and, and joking and even dancing, but at the same time, it, it violence and, uh, and hate uh, creeping in as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause the alcohol is something that they do at points, they bond here. You know, you've got a bit of drunken catharsis where they've got their sea shanties. Mm-hmm. At the same time, whilst they're pissed as well, this is where you start getting these tensions arising, like, you know, you're cooking shit and stuff like this. Like, uh, I've, I've the, the bit where he's saying, come on, please let me see the light. And he's like, no. Um, yes. And I, I really like the superstitions angle that we have here. Mm-hmm. Now, with old Thomas, he references very early on, you know, you you can't... Kill a seabird. Oh, I was going to come to that in a moment. But oh, they, sorry. Yeah. You can't toast with, uh, with water, water here. Yeah, you know, okay. So we're getting from the get-go that his superstition is more important than this other guy's sobriety here. You know, that you can't kill a seagull, which of course he does. And he seems to suggest that everything goes wrong at the end because he told him his backing story. It's almost a, a Scottish dad kind of attitude of if you say personal things and all that, that can only go a bad way here. Then he asked personal questions, that sort of thing. All I said was, how are you, dad? But, uh, you know... Um, <laughs> like, ah, yes, you hear his voice in the corridor, you spilled your beans. <laughs> this is a bad thing. I this didn't tell you thing. that I killed my fellow... I was, oh! <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, man. <laughs> it's too true, I'm afraid. 
you know, um, it's why Scottish dads tend to get cast in that kind of role. I mean, Brian Cox in Succession, uh, Peter Mullen in Westworld, you know, we're, we're oh, yes, yeah, he was good in that too, we're, we're like, good at that kind of thing, but uh, yeah, I mean, the the, the superstition element, I think they're, they're weirdly, you know, there, there's, there's a common thread here almost. Uh, with with the witch in the sense that you have this mythology or or, or, or this religion that people are subscribing to, um, or at least in in the lighthouse, uh, old Tom is to the, the superstitions, these these mythologies. But at the same time, adhering to them gets you nothing back. You know, you get no comfort for losing a child. You know, when 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 one dies and the witch, and then even before you know, Winslow kills the kills the seabird. He's getting treated like like utter rubbish, you know. There's this one-eyed seagull that's more or less stalking him, and it's miserable. And so, all you can expect from adhering to this is just that they won't shit on you too much and like cause a storm, which means that you can't leave. It's not that you know following the rules gets you anything, or at least it seems to. Be. The lowest point, and they they actually become closer. After this has happened, probably because he's reached rock bottom and goes, I need a, I need a drink. <laughs> it's where he's making him paint the side of the lighthouse. <laughs> he's like, ah, uh, ships need to see it. You're like, what do you mean the ships need to see it? It's a gigantic fucking light on the top of this. Of course the yes. ships will see it, right? Um, but like such a pointless task. We see how little has been done. And he's like, this is a safe yeah. just hands around. Excuse me, I'm just doing Scottish accents here. Well, I mean, and also they don't finish it. You know, so I mean, again, it's this it's this thing of him more or less kind of bragging him, you know, uh, jerking his chain or whatever. Because if it was that important, then okay, you know, finish it. I mean, yes, he fell off, and but he didn't break a leg or anything. I mean, so if it's that important, carry on. Oh, the bit where he makes him lug the a huge <laughs> drum upstairs. Get going, yeah. oh, you could have used this weak canister. And then ask him lug it back down again. You're like, what a prick. Yep. Oh, yeah. This is probably a hazing thing. You know, maybe generationally this just happens. Every new lightkeeper is treated like shit by his master. In the building trade, you have the the sort of uh go get a go get some tartan paint for me, you know, which the equivalent would, would be uh, of- <laughs> and he was like Ah, uh, you know, paint the side of this thing. You know, he's probably, you imagine he's holding this thinking, oh, I can't believe this stupid bastard's actually doing this. <laughs> and something I absolutely want to compliment this movie for, with both actors, they are amazing in it. And mm. you completely forget about the previous stuff that you've seen him in. Starting with Robert Pattinson, because this is probably the most obvious out of two, you know, the, so he's got very clear baggage here. You're going, mm. right, this is the guy who's, whilst he's a good decade past this almost, you know, he's uh, he's done a lot of other stuff, he's still going to be best known for Twilight, right? Mm. And you're looking at someone who's found a lot of credibility, really, like he's really worked for this, you know, he's... He's a guy that, when I heard he was playing Batman in the next one, I wasn't thinking, oh, fuck that, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's Edward from Twilight or anything. I was like, oh, cool, Robert Pattinson, good choice. Like, he does a career best performance here. It was a real physical and emotional intensity 
that makes this sparkly vampire seem like some sort of a strange fever dream, the sort of mm. thing that you have because you spent too long with Willem Dafoe. And <laughs> Dafoe is just great in this too. I was actually, last night, I was asking people on Twitter what their favourite Dafoe performances were. Because he's one of those actors that, like, for me, the main thing I've seen him in is obviously Spider-Man where he plays the Green Goblin. I've seen him in uh, Wild at Heart as well, where he was playing such a repulsive character in that. I believe he, I've never seen Platoon, I believe he's, I believe he's in yes. that as well, right? Oh, he is, and he plays quite a, a pivotal role, as I recall. You know, the iconic, uh, again, spoilers alert, folks, but uh, iconic image of the man kind of falling to his knees after getting raped. Oh, if I'm remembering right, that that's Willem, Willem Dafoe. Um, and, you know, you have that famous... Uh, well, I'm not going to do it justice, but that, that famous kind of piece of music that gets played over it as well is, I think, Charlie Charlie Sheen's character uh, sees him get gunned down. Mm, like, the thing is with him, he taps into the, the what I assume, are in, assume is an intentionally comedic side of a character. Mm. But when you, the bit where he just stands up and starts yelling out that Milton-esque monologue Oh god! Yeah, oh, that was so impressive. Like this could have been something that everyone just laughs at. And the thing is, it's quite humorous. Where a mm. uh, young young Thomas has to have it your way. Him. I liked your cooking. <laughs> uh, yeah, like but that that bit was so powerful. He's mm. he's absolutely fantastic in this. Like I yeah. love it. It's almost like an anti-body movie that we have here. <laughs> well, I mean, for me, I mean, with with the two of them. Um, you know, Pattinson, obviously, yeah, I, I, I fell into the same kind of mindset, you know, pretty boy from Twilight sort of view of him. Um, but in fairness to, I mean, to to the, to the guy, I mean, uh, the choice, he's been deliberately trying to um, branch out and, and, and do different things. Um, you know, he could so easily have just kept going down the kind of um, that that sort of, and do those sorts of big budget films. Um I mean, one of the things that first caught my eye with him was uh, he had a small but quite important role in a film called uh, The Childhood of a Dictator, The Childhood of a Dictator, which is a really uh, interesting kind of um, historical film, uh, not a horror, but I think uh, the, the major character in that was also, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name, but he played Davos in, in Game of Thrones. And that was a really interesting film and a really interesting choice in, in his part for me. And I think with Eggers too, because Eggers at one stage was kind of weighing up which film he wanted to do next before he decided on The Lighthouse. And he offered apparently Pattinson a role of a sort of English gentleman, a kind of society type. And he turned it down because he didn't, he didn't want to do that kind of thing. He thought it would be too within what he had done before. And he wanted to do the strangest possible thing that Eggers could offer him. And lo and behold, eventually he gets the, this role in the lighthouse. That's really interesting, that, that he was approaching Patterson, Patterson first thing. So I, I didn't know if this is a case of, you know, he was he was just one of the people who who, who got brought in rather than, like, rather than he was necessarily targeting him. But, mm. you know, the, the choice is so strong. I mean, I think for Patterson, the biggest change for him will have been working with David Cronenberg. And mm. fair play to David Cronenberg for taking a punt on him. You know, that brought him really into this kind of respectability that I don't think he would otherwise have had. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with Defoe, I mean, I think what you really see in that 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 scene you mentioned with the with the, the curse, the monologue, is 
and something I didn't appreciate until kind of looking into his his wider background coming into this uh, podcast that he's got a very strong theatre background. And, you know, that monologue, um, I had to check, you know, that it wasn't a quotation from something like The Tempest or, or, or something like that. Um, it, but it was it was incredibly well delivered. And you'll notice that um, he doesn't blink once during that that monologue. Um, oh, his eyes I are just popping out of his head and it's it's... <laughs> It's it's incredible to watch. One could probably quite reasonably say it seems like both the the brothers Eggers and Defoe kind of showing off here, <laughs> um, and fair play, they've got a lot to show off. They they, they do such a great job there. Uh, as other things with this movie go, mm-hmm. where we have the kind of the explicit horror sequences in this, and there are some, they're incredibly effective. The kind of grotesque images with the tentacles and the uh, bit where he, so cathartic for me in Aberdeenshire, the bit where he beats that seagull to death, smacking <laughs> it, uh, going, letting everything out on that. You know, bits like that stick with you. You know, the final shot of the film sticks with you as well. And... We're just like with The Witch, we have such a good sense of inevitability about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Both The Witch and The Lighthouse, we see the characters thrust into this isolated situation that we know is not going to succeed. You know, anyone walking into that asylum, they know it's a horror film, so of course they're not just going to have a right old jolly time of The Lighthouse. We can believe that either one of these men is going to kill the other. It's just figuring out which way it's going to go, which one's going to snap first. I mean, I guess that, the, you know, maybe this was inevitable because they they framed it mostly from uh, Patterson's character's perspective. You know, you're, you're mostly seeing the film through, through him. And I wonder, I wonder whether you think that it would have benefited from more going back or forth, or maybe you'd have ruined one of the, the key points where Defoe's kind of more obviously mysterious and, uh, you know, and, and, and so on. Um, but then again, you might have had greater levels of tension because for me, I always thought that, yeah, it's going to be Patterson who, who, who does amend at the end if, if, um, because that's the way it's kind of building. I think it has to be told from his perspective, yeah, because he's the one who we come to believe he's losing his grip on sanity, whereas Mm. we also assume that old Thomas has already lost his. Mm. And maybe what we're seeing is this guy, this guy is your future. (laughs) You know, this is who you're going to end up being, which is in line with the kind of father-son dynamic that we have, where with... Patterson's character, you know, he wants the validation of this guy here for large parts. You know, he wants a father figure like him, which is why it's so strange when he then becomes like the uh, the husband and wife. And at the end where he becomes a dominant party, you know, he's leading mm. him out like a dog. Yes. Booting him into the, uh, gr- into the grave that he's dug, if mm. we believe that that's meant to actually be happening. And then presumably works as a metaphor of him burying his feelings for him literally here, just like he, bu- just like he literally buried his feelings for the other guy by killing him. 
No, I mean, I think that's obviously why when he does see the logbook, he's so hurt, you know, because when you, well, firstly, if, if he didn't give a crap about what this guy thought of, about him, then he wouldn't care, you know, that, that he's saying he's a lazy or prone to self-abuse or whatever. And also, you know, you wouldn't even by this point, if it was just about this, be so worried about your job because after spending all this bloody time on this lighthouse, presumably the last place you want is, well, I might get some leave and then I'm going back to another lighthouse, you know? So, <laughs> so clearly, absolutely, you know, he's he's devastated by what this guy's written and, and um, you know, it's a personal thing, a betrayal. So, out of curiosity, you, I'm sure you'll know this better than I, do you know what sort of period lighthouses would have stopped being like manned in that way well the very last as i understand in the uk was the the 1980s um but they were becoming fewer and fewer uh by that point you know they uh the um, having machines and so on to do it instead i mean the interesting thing about the smalls lighthouse what happens after that at least within the uk so i don't know if this happened in in america but with the UK after that tragedy, uh, they always had three people in there rather mm. than just two. But that's, that's absolutely crazy, the thought that after humans had walked on the moon, we still had, we still had a couple of decades before we, before we mastered having a lighthouse that operates independent of people. Yeah, but then again, people might, 50 years from now, might look back at our time and think, how, how, how did these guys still have people driving trains or... or yeah. Uh, dri- driving lorries or, or whatever um, it would seem very arcane to them but and I guess a part of it was just it was such a long tradition you know hundreds and hundreds of years of people manning these these buildings and um, especially if in the UK because we, we've got so many kind of um, stormy seas rocky shoals you know islands where ships could bump you know crash into if um, I was about to say bump into as like a, <laughs> Like we dealt it. Yeah, which is unfortunate. You don't want that to happen, but um, <laughs> you know, and, and <laughs> but absolutely a very long, long, long-standing tradition uh, with, with lighthouse keepers and, and and so on. What would have been this the kind of social standing of a lighthouse keeper, right? Like, would would there be a kind of a nobility attached to the whole thing? I think for a lot of, I mean, respected kind of profession, you know. Uh, you know, it would be by the standards of, you know, uh, ordinary jobs, you know, well well paid and everything, and you would have had a, a pension. The funny thing is you would have had some, depending on which lighthouse you're posted at, some opportunities that you're, you're <laughs> this would be really merging the lighthouse with the witch, but some possibilities of your family also uh, being a part of it, you know. So not all the lighthouses were... Um, you know, like off on an island where, you know, you, you were stuck for ages. Some were just on the coast, you know, and, and you could have a, a comparatively normal life. So I suppose your, you know, your your circumstances really did depend on where you were posted. Um, and I think they, they wanted to make the point with this lighthouse, Eggers, that it was very remote, which is partly why it was in such a terrible state because lighthouses generally were a lot better kept than that. And they had quite sort of high standards for maintenance and, and everything. But, and, you know, inspectors would actually come quite often to make sure everything for obvious reasons, you know, because you can't have the, 
this the whole thing failing. Um, there's mm-hmm. dire potential consequences if that happened. It was uh, it was crazy that this one was not nominated. It was nominated for a technical Oscar, I believe, but it's crazy that Defoe was not nominated for supporting actor. Yes, I, I'd agree. Or you know, um, certainly um, at least considered. Or I think it was. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was only cinematography or something. Yes, it was cinematography. It didn't. It didn't even win that one either. No, and and by God, it would have deserved even just that because they literally built. The lighthouse. I mean, that's something I didn't appreciate until I, I looked into it later. Was that you know this is not a, an actual lighthouse. They they built it, um, and in in Canada um, in Cape Fourchu, uh, Nova Scotia. So they they literally built a lighthouse over the winter. Uh, in, I think twenty eighteen to twenty nineteen. I suppose it would have been. Um, and they're also filming. I think um, uh, end of winter, start of spring, and it was a bloody miserable experience from from what i've read um you know and in cold but but also getting sort of uh jets of water getting sort of uh, fired at you you know trudging up and down the shoreline so therefore you know those faces that they have when they're miserably going about their work is is not hard to uh to, to act that uh, so again it's just the, the how you know the, the shooting you know sort of massively builds into the performances and therefore allows us to find it more immersive. Uh, yeah, is- I understand. Uh, Eggers is also meant to be a total prick to his actors, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Like having him do manual labour for hours and things. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, with, with Innocent, you know, um, you know, the Eggers kind of made a, a, a light-hearted comment. I saw him and uh, Innocent were, were, were getting interviewed um, and said, well, you know, we had some beers at the end of the shoot and then Innocent kind of interjected and went, well, not me. I had to lose tw- 25 pounds for this role and uh, <laughs> I wasn't allowed to drink. And, and and that's quite something itself because, I mean, if you if you see Ralph Innocent in other films, I mean, he's not a fat man <laughs> by any stretch. No, no. I mean, oh, God. With A24, it seems he's got some really good partners there because, I mean, A24 are almost becoming synonymous with quality nowadays. You know, you look particularly at the horror films recently. You've done... Uh, Hereditary, The Lighthouse, uh, Midsummer, The Witch, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Climax, oh, yeah. Green Room, uh, Saint Maud was them, and I believe Under the Skin and It Comes at Night were also by them too. So you know they've done shitloads. In fact, actually, a very similar one to this in terms of the vibe, or actually some more similar to The Witch, is have you seen uh, The Black Coat's Daughter yet? It's also called February. No, I, I haven't seen that. Well worth seeing. It's on Netflix right now. In the UK, it's called February. It's called uh, The Black Coat's Daughter in America. And uh, it's similar style to The Witch. It's brilliant. Whatever name people uh, watch it by, that is also A24, and it's fantastic. That's a great back catalogue. I didn't realise that the, the one studio had made all those. Oh, some they just distributed. I've seen most of the ones you listed and pretty damn good i believe they've done some less quality things a lot of people don't like tusk for example which was them and uh, a lot of people didn't like that uh, hole in the ground one that we did either but okay. yeah you know by this point synonymous of quality i think we're doing the next robert eggers one as well which will be coming to in just a moment mm-hmm. have you got anything else that you want to be adding about the lighthouse at all this is more just a small technical thing i suppose but you know, there there was a couple of things when 
listening to the commentary that um, that Eggers mentioned and, and found interesting and kind of shed you know extra light on it. But during the film itself, without knowing these details, I don't think there were just a couple of occasions where I don't think you could come to that conclusion. Um, so, for instance, in the commentary, he pointed out that you know one of the first things that um, Winslow Tom does when he comes into uh, the cottage is 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 try and get into this um, this desk. Um, you know, so you, that immediately establishes that he is kind of a sketchy character, and you, you know we shouldn't trust him that much. Um, but I don't think that in, when you watch that the film bit of it, the actual scene, uh, that there's enough to really. Uh, get that to understand that, and there's just one or two bits like that that he, he mentioned. I just thought it was, it was actually just too subtle, you know, in terms of what they were putting on 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 film on screen. You know, obviously, you know, with with your um, with your audience, you you want to show not tell. It's like like writing a good book, a good story. But sometimes when you're too subtle, you know, it, you you miss the point, you know, or or you have you you don't make the point that you want to make rather. Yeah, I think that's fair. I wouldn't have necessarily picked up on that as some as much more of a curiosity. I didn't pick up on that as someone who, you know, that this is a reason not to trust him. Something I'd like to add, I mentioned earlier, the real strength of this film for me comes from making the audience feel what the characters feel. Mm-hmm. I really couldn't think of another movie that does an unravelling quite as well as this does. Two characters just really losing their grip on sanity here, or at least one of them who's still got sanity to lose, the other who probably doesn't. And, you know, I just can't say enough about this, of of how, how effective the movie is about creating this kind of empathy that we have for Rob Pattinson. I think so much of this comes from this presentation, like this constant noise, you know, this... Uh, watching him do manual labor, a big oppressive uh, room of a furnace where it's just noise left, right and center. And you can see why that this would, this would be enough to break him. Um, yeah. I can't think of other uh, films that do that as well. You're doing all that. And, um, and then you're getting told by uh, an angry old man that you haven't done it properly or, or, or quickly enough. And, you know, absolutely. Um, even though you know you you because that that is a challenge in and of itself, and even though you you have suspicions about this guy and who he is and what he's done and all the rest of it, you, as you're you're right, you still have this this real empathy uh, for him in, in in this instance, which is uh, a testimony you know uh, to to the writing, but also to to Robert Patterson himself and and his performance. Absolutely fantastic. That makes me excited about seeing whatever Robert Eggers does next. On that, let's start wrapping up. Well, that finishes off the Robert Eggers double bill. With Eggers, I believe, before he made The Lighthouse, he was really wanting to do a remake of Nosferatu. The idea of a relatively new director tackling that source material 
in a way that could have resembled a very different Greek story from the one here. It could have been like Icarus flying too close to the sun. Yet at the same time, I think Icarus would really be able to do Nosferatu justice. You a fan of Nosferatu, Gainsey? Um, yes, I, I mean, it's been quite a long time since I, I, I saw it, but, um, you know, you can certainly see how, you know, it's it's the genesis for, for so much of what, what comes through in horror uh, over um, over the next uh, century, because I guess it nearly is a century since it, it was made. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing is that Willem Dafoe, I think, was involved in a, in a telling of Nosferatu. It was a film which had John Malkovich, I think, play the key character. And he was playing the the character actor, Max Schreck, is it, who played... Um, Nosferatu in, in the, uh, the original German film, but uh, it wasn't uh, that well received, uh, as, I, as I recall that that film. So, um, but it is, as you say, a, a big challenge. Um, and but, and I think it's certainly something he has on the cards. Um, but uh, you know, his, his next one is going to be uh, the Northman, uh, which which could be could be very interesting, uh, based on a sort of Viking saga um, by the sounds of things. Yeah, because I'm just taking a wee look at what the latest update on uh, his version of Nosferatu is, which it I believe he's still saying that because of the amount of blood that's gone into preparing it, after so many years and just so much blood, he wants to do it. But he is currently, as you said, prepping the, uh, the Northmen. Hmm. Now, this is going to be a Viking film, which I know will be battle scene heavy. And that makes me think that he's presumably being trusted with a bigger budget than he was for either of his first two movies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be really exciting. Yes. Um, and I think there's, well, there's tons of things as well, which, should, you know, it has attracted a, a good cast. We alluded to to some of them earlier, some of the names, Willem Dafoe back and uh, Alexander Skarsgård um, and... Um, and also, the, funnily enough, the man who played the, the mountain in Game of Thrones. So it does sound like there's going to be some some fighting um, in, involved in that if he's <laughs> attached all seven foot of him. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it, I think that what would have attracted a lot of that cast um, is that I think um, the story that's going to be portrayed here by the sounds of things is an inspiration for, for Hamlet, you know, um, the story of a prince avenging his... Uh, his murdered father, the, the former king. Yes, and I assume that we're going to be off shooting this in Iceland. It's where it's set, but actually, it's uh, from what I read, it was mostly filmed, and it was filmed in Northern Ireland. Ah. Uh, yeah, and I believe the entire thing, the entire thing's been finished. Uh, it's got, uh, on the Icelandic connection, by the way, it's got Bjork in it. Which is <laughs> quality. Uh, Bjork, of course, did the Lars von Trier film uh, Dancer in the Dark, where I believe she said she didn't want to be doing any other films afterwards. She did do Drawing Restraint 9, um, and then this is her first movie, I believe, since 2005. So, yeah, basically, if he's convinced her to be a part of it, that genuinely excites me. Yeah. I think I think as far as uh, the future with Eggers goes, you know, it's amazing that he's had the success he has had without doing films that I think are necessarily very audience friendly. You know, the names that you mentioned at the beginning, 
Jennifer Kent, Ari Aster, not so much Jordan Peele, but these three all do really quite unconventional works. I mean, Jordan Peele does as well, absolutely fair play to him. He also does very unconventional films, but he's managed to do something that can fill multiplexes in a way that I don't think any of these other freed can. At the same time, you know, we're also just looking at three really exciting directors in horror who've only made two movies so far each. With Jennifer Kent, I know The Nightingale. Maybe mm. we'll tackle that in a follow-up at some point. So I don't want to say too much, but, you know, with The Nightingale, as a follow-up to Babadook, I mean, that's a fucking range that woman has, you know? Yes, I mean, it, it was almost um, going from a sort of Shining-like film to a kind of Eggers E type 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 film, you know. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was I was very impressed with 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 both, and um, yeah, um, and actually, you know, got into so. Of course, you know, it'd be great if we could if we could chat about the Nightingale and other time, but. Uh, you know, certainly got into the issues of empire, you know, within its film and, um, you know, in, in a very interesting way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, something I really liked about it, you know, you've got this, uh, it's not, you wouldn't really call it a friendship between the two characters as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, for women and uh, the guy, the Aborigine guy, she's got, got with it, mm-hmm. got as her guide. But something I found really interesting was the way that, you know, we're following her throughout this and something terrible happens early on in the film. For anyone that's not seen it, I shan't give it away. But the film's ostensibly a revenge plot. And I liked that it didn't hold back that she was also racist. Yes, yes. it, It was not, for her, this is never a relationship among equals. And I liked that it was taking, I suppose people call this a quite a modern intersectional approach towards the idea of oppression here. You know, you've got that uh, she'll still treat this guy like shit, but the thing that bonds him is you have a common enemy. And the common enemy of this is the British guys. Mm-hmm. Well, specifically the, the British officer, um, mm. um but yes, we shan't say anything more about the motivation. Oh, no, no, no. It, it's she, deserving of a, a proper look, that film, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. So maybe maybe we shall uh, return to do, to do some more uh, horror cult films history. I thought I'd finish up by bringing in the top 10 period horror films. So this is on Ranker.com, which is a list website where it's voted for by members of the public. With that qualifier, what do you reckon is going to be in the top 10? At least either, I would hope, uh, The Witch or or The Lighthouse, if not both. The Witch is in there. The Lighthouse is not in there. Okay. In fact, The Lighthouse, uh, just scrolling down, see if it even makes the list at all. Uh, Just scroll very far down to reach it if it does. Um, the lighthouse doesn't appear to be on this list at all. Um, the others. Uh, the others, yes, the others is on this list. The others. If I'll tell you where it comes, where it comes uh, in just a moment. But the 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 is on the top ten. What else do we reckon? Okay. A field in England, or is that too obscure? A field in England is not on the top ten. Uh, uh, Women in Black. 
Uh, Women in Black is yes, yes. That's that's in the top ten. Sounds like ten. Um, uh, I mean, the Conjuring. Uh, yes. Any of those films? Yeah. Yeah, for two, we have two Conjuring films in the top ten here. To be fair, I love the second Conjuring film. Think versus okay. Uh, but <laughs> yes, the, it was, for, for it was those the listening, David's David made quite a face there. I went, I went <laughs> <describe> it, uh. <laughs> it's diplomatically pre. I think a second conjuring is actually, for the record, one of one of the best or best horror sequels of recent years. I thought, I thought it was pretty damn decent and improved on the original one. I'll tell you what's in the top ten. So in fact, actually, I'm even going to do the top fifteen. Number fifteen is Sweeney Todd. The 2006 version directed by David Moore with Tom Hardy in it. Number, I've never watched that. Not, oh, so not the, I was thinking, like, not the Johnny Depp one. Oh, it's got uh, Tom Hardy, Ray Winston, and David Warner. I've right. never heard of this movie. Uh, number 14, I have seen this one, Ravenous. You watch ah, Ravenous? Robert Carlyle with yeah. Cannibal. Yeah, Guy okay. Pierce, a cannibal one. Number 13. The Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. This is a fantastic little supernatural horror by Guillermo del, to- del Toro. Yes. Really good, really atmospheric, and paved the way for stuff like Pan's Labyrinth. It's set in Spain during the Spanish Civil War as well, right? As, as I yeah, absolutely. And f- I, I, it's something I, f- I find interesting with Del Toro's films, really, is for, he does this kind of magic realist tradition incredibly. Um, number 12 this is a strange entry I didn't expect it to be as high is From Hell the Johnny oh. Depp film which is alright uh, next up number 11 I genuinely did not like this film The Awakening the Nick Murphy film starring Rebecca Hall Imelda Staunton and Dominic West I thought this was a really really boring ghost film a good ghost film, but number 10 is The Conjuring, the Enfield Portergeist, The Conjuring Part 2, sorry. Number 9, Crimson Peak. So Del Toro was back again. Have you seen Crimson Peak yet? I haven't. It's uh, No, is it worth, worth, worth my while? Or? Uh, yeah, I quite enjoyed this one. I, I wasn't really expecting all that much. I was in a Del Toro mood, so it was one of the ones I hadn't, hadn't seen, so it was on Netflix, I thought... Fuck it, I'm going to make sure my twin brother gets value for money out of his Netflix subscription, so I decided to watch it. And uh, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. It's not scary as such, but it's got a really good aesthetic about it. Really well designed. Uh, number eight is A Woman in Black. The, of course, this is the movie version, not the made-for-TV version, which most people in the horror community would say they prefer. Did you like The Woman in Black as a film? I I thought it was all right, but uh, like yourself and I think a lot of other people, I thought uh, Radcliffe was was miscast. Oh, he was far too young for that role. Yeah. Like. I thought an older, uh, you know, not not radically, but you know, a guy in his forties or, or or something, you know. Something that frustrated me about the Woman in Black, this version rather than the. And if anyone hasn't seen the made for TV version, by the way, it's recently been released on Blu-ray really really good uh, with this version something that frustrated me is we don't just see the woman in black when other characters do she just shows up in the background a lot mm. and it's like the entire second act is just him wandering around a house with her showing up going looming in the background and then doing absolutely nothing 
like we weren't scared of her. Um, mm-hmm. The play, by the way, is also well worth watching. I think it works right. best as a play. Uh, it's just two actors in a washing basket for most of it, and they really make you, they train you to use your imagination with a wa- washing basket standing in for lots of other things. Really good play, very funny actually in points, and very genuinely scary as well. Um, okay. Number seven, Shutter Island. A decent movie, I felt. Very decent movie in its own right. I thought the plot twist was slightly silly. I wasn't a fan of the idea they were... <laughs> yeah, we'll just give him free, ro- free reign to do his thing, you know. He's not hurting anyone. But, yeah, he could have, could have killed somebody or... or <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah, I enjoy, I thoroughly enjoyed it, though. It's not, it's not one of Martin Scorsese's better films, but then the thing is, that's because Martin Scorsese is such a high standard to work with. You know, for a lot of people, this mm. would be a career best. Yeah, next, yeah. Next up, interview with the Vampire, the Vampire Chronicles. This is, of course, the Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt and Kirsten Dunst vehicle by Neil Jordan. An epic tale of uh, of the vampire saga, vampire on the psychiatrist couch, and a really, really quite good period piece. Decent designs, quite quite enjoyably camp. Is that a psychiatrist or a journalist with Kristen Slater, or was it both? I believe they actually are a journalist, but it's it's still essentially standing in for the psychiatrist couch, you know, putting the vampire under oh, a microscope, let's characterise yeah. them. Um, we have at number five the original Conjuring film, which, again, is generally fine. I like the cupboard sequence. I can, I can see why it began a franchise. Uh, have you watched either of the, the first Conjuring? I've seen both, yes. Um, like you, I probably did prefer the the second one. I thought it had a you know one of the best kind of um, jump scare sort of sequences, you know, with the nun uh, in, in you know mm. with the painting, and that was quite early on in the film, actually, um, or at least in the first half. Um, Sadly, it spawned a half-baked um, sort of uh, film from her down the road. But 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 no, I, I, I thought it was really good. Um, did you see? I, I guess you must have seen the, um, the 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 mini series in the UK, the 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 haunting at Enfield. Which oh yes, of... the, on, the Enfield haunting starring ah, Timothy okay. Spall. Yeah. Uh, I've actually not seen the entire thing. I saw the first episode. I was at, uh, I was at the premiere for that, mm-hmm. and Timothy Spall. <laughs> it's an unintentionally funny bit where. One of the journalists up front, I wasn't with the journalists, I'm with the, with the bloggers, but one of the journalists up front asked Timothy Spall if he believed in ghosts. And Timothy Spall obviously is con- is <laughs> contractually obliged not to dismiss the true story that the movie's based on. And he gives this really mealy-mouthed response about, well, uh, the character did, I was getting into character and so on. Um, you know, I can't dismiss it. Lots of people have had experiences. So like, mate, we know you don't believe in ghosts. But yeah, it was good. Did you see that yourself? I did, yes. Um, yeah, and I thought it was generally decent. Um, I thought, um, oh God, I'm blanking on him. Uh, Matthew McFadden was, was also... Uh, was also uh, good in it. I mean, I do quite like the idea of seeing something that's more based around the family than seeing something with the Warrens, just because, by reputation, the pair of them are total wankers. Obviously, I don't mean the yeah. cast, I just mean the, the real people, the Warrens. And uh, I believe, even ignoring the... like 
just ignoring that, ignoring whether ghosts exist or not, which we're obviously working with the basis that they don't, right? At the same time, even within that industry, you're looking at people who were unambiguously fraudsters by the sound of it, right? Okay, yeah. Who would like show up at the end of other people's work and then start taking credit for it or greatly exaggerate things in their own books. Uh, yeah, by, by all accounts, not particularly nice people. And then, of course, the movies make them out to be superheroes. In fact, The Conjuring has another one coming out, The Devil Made Me Do It, where they appear to be fighting <laughs> Satan at one point, which is based upon a real case of someone killing their uh, partner, I believe, and then uh, saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, it was all it was all Satan, basically. Uh, something that in real life we can assume is not true, although a person probably had severe mental health issues, and something that the film will almost certainly play at face value. Number four is Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola version. Of course, Keanu Reeves, among others. And uh, Gary Oldman, I believe, plays Dracula. He does, yes. I have um, never watched this one. Steph, who's probably listened to this, she is a huge fan of this movie. And at some point, I swear I will. Next up at number three, it is a Tim Burton film, Sleepy Hollow. Cool. I thought this was a pretty decent one. Good fun, very hammerish. Top three, though. Ooh, I don't know about that. Um. <laughs> we, we, we've named better films below, I reckon. The fact that The Lighthouse doesn't make this chart, but that does. Uh, they, oh, by the way, the... The Willem Dafoe and John Malkovich one, Shadow of the Vampire, that makes the top 20 as well, uh, at number 18. In fact, wow, the first Annabelle film is 22. Yeah. Yeah, this is a strange list. Fucking Doreen Gray's on this, but the like this isn't. I was wondering, you know, when when you when you mentioned the, the list thing to me and not to, not to complicate things too much, but whether or not, you know, sort of having a, different categories potentially between historical horror and kind of period horror in the sense that historical for me means that you're you're at least getting somewhat immersive and you know you're you're, you're dealing with the period itself whereas you know you can tell a kind of serial killer type story with very common tropes with other genres of of horror but within a kind of period setting and so uh, i don't know whether it's helpful to have those sorts of sub sub genres or whatever or not. I'm just being very uh, pernickety with, with, with No, I think that, that works. It's a, not dissimilar to the idea of soft and hard sci-fi. Actually, to tell you the truth, uh, I did see two different lists. The reason I'm including this one, but not the other, is one of the others was taken to piss, where it's period horror. To, one of them took place in the 1980s. Right? <laughs> I was like, like... If I, I know, if I lived through the period, I'm not going to qualify this as historic horror. Um, uh, the number two, by the way, is the witch, which means number one is the others. Right. You a fan of the others? I uh, by your right. I assume obviously you think the witch should have won this one. But. Um, I, I'd say it's better than the others, uh, um, but no. I mean, I think it's a. It's a solid horror. I mean, it's, um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's got, it's got everything you'd want. And indeed it is, you know, historical, although maybe more kind of period, you know, in, in that sub ranking than, but it's fine, you know, it's, but I wouldn't rank it as, you know, like my, my, I'd say maybe four, 
you know, mm-hmm. stars rather than five stars. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I think with it, part of what maybe makes it seem a bit old hat nowadays was the time that it came out, the reveal in it, which I think's handled well on the off chance people haven't seen it. I'm not going to spoil it here. <laughs> uh, but the reveal in it happened at a time when you wouldn't have expected that kind of ending. And I think nowadays as an audience, we've maybe become a bit too uh, mm-hmm. a bit too used to it. We've, we can see this sort of thing coming more and maybe the, the film seems worse because it's been influential or because other films had, had similar ideas. You know, it's a bit like how it's difficult to imagine approaching something like the Blair Witch Project nowadays for the first time. Mm-hmm. I remember That's showing true. one of my cousins, um, younger cousins, The Shining, and you know he'd never seen the film. He'd have been nineteen or twenty when he saw it. And this was like a few years ago. And uh, the thing is, he's aware of a lot of the iconography, things in it that he was not aware came from that. Now with the others, it doesn't really have the same sense of iconography. But what it does have is particular plot beats that I think nowadays we would be savvy to. So a few last thoughts about his, this whole idea of period horror and historic horror. What periods would you like to see show up more? Ooh, Imagine um, you're making your own period horror. What What do you reckon you would do with it? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I What I'd find interesting, at least as, as a sort of idea, is... I know kind of certain films have, have, have touched upon uh, this, even Sleepy Hollow in a way, um, but the idea of of, of doing it at, at a point where people are beginning to move away from, you know, aspects of the supernatural, whether it's witches and, and so on in early America or in, in, in Europe, um, or even if we go to, to Eastern Europe, you know, uh, vampires and, and, and so on, where, where we're getting that. But, but, and so there's aspects of society where, where people are refusing to believe it because they, they think it's just nonsense. And then there's others who hold more to the old ways who, who are, are, are saying this is really happening and, and everything. Um, I was brought to mind by that when, when I was listening to a history podcast about um, the Empress Mar- Mar- uh, Maria Theresa of, um, of Austria. And there was a point where there was a vampire scare in, in, her, in her empire in, in, in I think, Transylvania. Um, and so she had to send these very well-educated um, doctors you know, to go to that part of the empire and basically prove it was nonsense and oh, show right. how... how how the bodies could look like this after death and, and, and so on. And so these guys had to go through and do it. And I just, that struck me as a very fascinating idea. And for instance, what if you, if you had these two guys going to another village, which is having a vampire scare, but oh, actually they are. Um, maybe something like that uh, would, would be interesting. I think with this sort of period horror, there's going to be some sort of a, limitations on when something's too recent, right? Because, you know, you're thinking, okay, say you were doing a a movie, or not so much, not necessarily just about recency, there's also a taste element. Like, say you're doing a film about World War II in general, right? And you have, like, say you've got uh, Nazis that are ghosts, for instance. That would be seen as relatively okay, right? Because you're going, okay, well, they're the, you know, they're the, the bad guys here. Now, I remember watching the Chernobyl Diaries, and which had a funny bit of the 
I work alone. The tour guide who takes people around Chernobyl for one fucking job you do not work alone in. And there's something so exceptionally bad taste about going, all right, some of the victims of that disaster, uh, you know, they're, they're the mutants and they're, they're, oh, yeah. they're going to kill people, right? And you're like, okay, if that had happened 100 years ago, for instance, like, would we have the same standard about that? Like, I don't think it'll ever be okay to make, say, a 9-11 themed horror film, for instance. I mean, I think a difference, though, between, you know, use the examples of, of the Nazis earlier. I guess the difference is, you know, the people of, of Chernobyl being uh, innocent or unfortunate victims of, of, of what happened versus, you know, you're making your, your ghosts, your, 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 your horrible characters Nazis and, you know, there, there is a kind of difference there, even if we were having this, this conversation in the sixties, you know, um, and, and obviously the, the events of the war, mm. not near, not as far removed as they are today. Yeah, um, no, I think it's a, it's a fair point. Um, you know, the, the further away we get from past events, the, the more, and, and certainly once we we lose the last people who remember them, um, the easier it is to to be kind of flippant uh, about it. Yeah, I mean, there's something quite, I guess, in the U, I mean, this isn't just a UK thing, but the way that we have like war films as stories of heroism a lot of the time, you know, something like 1917, for instance. And I guess with horror films, there's maybe something that, is, that comes across as inherently disrespectful about that genre. Now, it's a really interesting point about when you're saying, okay, it's about victims, for instance, and that's where people are innocent then you wouldn't be using them as the threat where it is okay with with Nazis in this because, you know, they're the bad guys in this this situation, right? And, you know, like, as obviously the same period, you could never imagine, quite rightfully, you couldn't imagine a, a Holocaust-themed horror film being made or certainly not being successful if it were made. You've got a whole sort of sub-genre of this, like your experiment love camp style films or whatever, but... At the same time, this wouldn't enter mainstream horror in the same way that World War II more broadly would. The way that, uh, you know, something like the Vikings, you can, you, you got horror films about Vikings, you've got horror films about the Wild West. I think with history, you know, there are certainly parts of it that are just, it, we won't, we won't see that. No, um, and... I think other subjects, you know, like 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 slavery, uh, for instance, you know, would 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 be very very hard to to um, you know make. And maybe that you were referring to antebellum earlier. I mean, mm. was, was that part of the the issue? Um, that, that, that yeah, the like to be fair to antebellum, the sets in it are pretty fantastic, and the and the film. It obviously, like, it's trying to draw parallels between uh, attitudes that are unfortunately very common today and suggesting it's the same kind of mindset that would have allowed people to be subjugated at the time. I just think the film has a sort of sledgehammer approach towards its characterization, towards the way it's telling its story, to the point that it just comes across as quite, quite insincere and really quite um i mean i used the word shallow earlier i think and i think that's fair i, I think the 
You know, I think you possibly can make a horror film about slavery. I mean, thinking of the terribly named Haunting in Connecticut Part 2, Ghost of Georgia was another one. But I think okay. if you are doing this with a, such a serious serious uh, issue, you know, you have to, uh, you've got to do it very sensitively. I mean, there are some about prisons of war camps and stuff like that, the horror subgenre. You've got ones about like... Uh, like uh, experiments being done at uh, at prison of war camps. In fact, at uh, some of them in concentration camps as well. Thinking of some of the stuff about Japanese camps, but that fish have been made. But at the same time, um, you know, these films tend not to be successful. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, I, one thing that kind of came to mind, you know, within the World War Two area. I don't know if you saw the the Captain, a, a German film. Um, I don't believe I have. What's the came out a couple of years ago? I, I think you could tentatively uh, call it horror. It certainly has um, horror themes to it, but essentially, it's the tail end of World War Two, um, and you have a, a German soldier who's deserted, and he and he comes across um, a wounded or dead captain. But but regardless, he he gets his his uniform. And still at this point, even though Nazi Germany's uh, crumbling, you know, um, in the last throes of, of its life, he puts on this uniform and as an officer, he's got literally life or death powers. And he's, he's just a young man, only 18 or 19 years old. And he's, he's able to get people to do things and uh, even kill themselves or other people. Um, and it's based on a real person who did this, you know, uh, you know, and it's... Um, it's it, yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting watch to put it put it mildly. I mean, I think something that uh, is immediately appealing about this sort of period thing is when you can maybe get rid of some of the modern conveniences that can make storytelling difficult. I remember I was at a premiere for a movie called uh, Rights of Spring. It was called, and um, the director did a Q and A afterwards. The film takes place in the nineteen nineties. He was asked. <laughs> why do you set this film in the 1990s? And he goes, because I think it's very difficult to generate tension where people have smartphones. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, rather than finding an awkward way of writing this smartphone out of it, so like, you know, oh no, I've not got any signal or like, ah oh, shit, I got water on my smartphone. You know, he just said, all right, set in 1996 or whatever, you know, deal with it, right? Mm. And I think maybe we, that sort of, pure fear that you get from a situation where you can't really do anything because it's difficult to relate to the concept of being completely lost right now oh sure difficult to relate to the concept of not being able to call the police i mean even though as as, a, as i think i might have alluded to when we started talking about the the lighthouse you know we can relate sadly you know our <laughs> our generation especially over the last year or so can relate to uh, great feelings of isolation and being cut off from other people you know, with technology, you know, it, you're never fully cut off, you know, and you've still got at least that, that tether, you know, to, to the rest of the world. And, you know, and, and so it's quite horrible to, to imagine, you know, um, lockdown and everything, but with none of that, you know, and, you know, that's certainly one of the, one of the things that makes um, uh, the witch and the lighthouse um, so so compelling and you you really you really sell the isolation 
uh, within the, within those films. And I was actually, uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was going to ask you uh, at some point, you know, whether you think this means that because technology is only going to grow apace in, in the coming years, as it always does, whether you think there'll be um, more historical horror films, partly for that that reason. I think what we certainly get within the horror within horror movie culture, there tends to be a big focus on like this kind of grindhouse tradition from the seventies and the eighties. Mm-hmm. And I think whether I don't know if proper like historic films like you know something that it takes place pre pre nineteen seventies. You know I don't know if that sort of things necessarily going to become more common of obviously at some point the 1970s will become rather than an era in which people lived in they'll just will become a period a period in which people read about more i guess mm-hmm. but i think if horror is as a genre it's kind of always had this tendency of looking backwards i don't mean that in a bad way about horror being regressive you know i think you know if you're looking at a lot of the iconography people still have comes from universal horror films mm-hmm. the the big monsters still have some sort of a presence and then, as I said, you've got this sort of fondness for uh, the sort of exploitation era. So I reckon we're always going to have period horrors. I, I think what we like, we do have some films that will take the opposite, where it's like, oh, let's try and make technology scary. Like, you know, here's a, a ghost that exists in social media. <laughs> and yeah, or or more like what. Charlie Brooker does with Black Mirror, for instance, where it's it's more about the sort of dystopia uh, that that can come with uh, technological advance. Yeah, uh, did you see Host on Shudder? No way, I, I haven't seen Host. It's worth doing the seven day trial for to watch. Uh, Host is a horror film, but it's all shot during lockdown. It's all shot over Zoom, right. and it ends up being about again like conferencing software and a ghost of a machine literally really quite good and then something like but then something like the ring say 20 years ago we're like all right vhs this will scare the shite out of people (laughs) so you know horror's always sort of had this uh all right let's see what we can do with uh, current technological crazies and uh you know let's you know like i'm waiting for some sort of uh supernatural well, I'm sure there've probably been plenty of these already, like supernatural films about stuff going viral, like a kind of equivalent of The Ring that takes place on YouTube for most of it. And uh, I think, I suppose we'll probably see both of these happening. Mm-hmm. I think also with, um, you know, uh, I think you maybe get kind of waves as well, where where sometimes, you know, the um, classic horror uh, stories of the 19th century come back into vogue. You know, uh, I'm thinking of the, sort of hammer or horror era of the 60s and 70s and you even have like the, the Vincent Price Edgar Allan Poe films from the from the 50s which would and they made something like half a dozen of those uh you know so so it comes in waves maybe um but I, I feel like you know with people like Eggers um coming to the fore it certainly shows what you can do uh with historical horror uh, just to finish this up I was wondering if you had yourself a favorite Horrific story from history. Oh, <laughs> God, I wish you'd, uh, wish you'd uh, uh, mentioned that before, because, I mean, man, there's so, there's so many, uh, mm. to, to be honest. Um, uh, horrible instances of, of, of torture, but, but psychological stuff as well. I mean, 
Um, one instance I'll, I'll, I'll throw in, uh, given vampires came up earlier, um, more from um, the original uh, um, Dracula or Vlad Dracul, um, uh, Vlad the Impaler, um, springs to mind, you know, in terms of one of the most grotesque aspects of uh, sort of psychological warfare where, you know, he, in real reality, you know, and he was obviously very different from Count Dracula, you know, of, of the novel, but he was, um, he was a warlord and, you know, um, fighting um, the Turks, the Ottomans, as they were trying to take over uh, what is today Romania. Um, but he was a complete master of psychological uh, warfare uh, to the point where he would, he would try and simply discourage um, the Ottomans from entering his area by impaling people. And literally there have been descriptions of forests um, of impaled uh, people on spikes um, as they approached his territory. You know, when impaling to, to be blunt uh, was done through uh, the rectum and was a very, very slow process as well. How would you impale? Would you, would like, you have a person bending forward and then you stand up afterwards or would you maybe systematically lowered onto the spike? I think a bit of both. I think you'd, you'd be shoved onto it to, you know, and he was said to also, um, although this could be just colour, it could be, um, maybe some Romanians would refer to this as Turkish propaganda, but was said to um, eat dinners uh, around these these forests. And so so that's certainly one that springs to mind as, as being absolutely horrific. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, but there's many, many others. Remember you told me a sp- Spooky one that took place on the Edinburgh's Royal Mile. Someone with a cannibal son or something like this. <laughs> well, yeah, um, it's it's unclear. Like with with Bobby, of course, uh, you know, in Scotland we're we're formed of of folk tales and so on, and you, you've always got to you maybe have to take things sometimes with a pinch of salt. But but certainly there's there's a, a long running story in the. Um, and it's, it's, it's a building that still stands today. Today, it's funnily enough, it's part of the Scottish Parliament. Um, it's, it's the sort of one very old building in that Parliament conque- uh, complex, uh, a tall white building from the, the 17th century. Um, and it was the, um, the Marquis, later Duke of Queens, uh, Queensbury's house. And he was, uh, he was believed to, he said to have a, a mad son um, who we kept locked in the, in the cellar inside the house. And, and this was um, on the day that uh, Scotland was meant to have voted, or at least Scotland's Parliament, I should qualify, uh, voted for voted for the Act of Union or Acts of Union in 1707. Uh, on that day, um, they, they'd all left the house, uh, leaving behind the mad son locked up, or meant to be locked up, and a kitchen boy uh, in, the, in, in the kitchen turning a, a spit uh, of meat uh, on a blazing fire, and uh, somehow, uh, I've never seen exactly how this happened, but the mad son got out, uh, very, very hungry, not fed very well inside his inside his cell, and uh, came across the the kitchen with the the boy and turning the roasted meat. Um, was meant to have tried the meat at first, it wasn't quite to his taste though, it wasn't cooked quite properly. So was then said to have picked up the boy and put him on the spit and uh, turned him and. Uh, eaten a chunk of him by the time everybody returned home uh, later on. Um, so that's a long-running story that you might hear in Edinburgh um, if you 
if you come to visit. If there's one thing we can, if there's one bit of advice we can both give you, you should at some point visit Edinburgh. That brings us to a grisly end. Everybody, thank you very much for listening to the latest edition of the Horror Cult Films podcast. Thank you very much to Gaines Murdoch for joining us today. Uh, thank, thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Cheers. And uh, to everyone at home, I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, just do get in touch if you want to let us know your favourite historical horrors. Uh, other than that, we wish you all a fond farewell and good night wherever you are. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Films.co.uk Thank you.